0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater, your podcast for discussions of cinematic train wrecks and near misses from the past of Hollywood. Uh, this week we're here to talk about 1987's The Hidden, a interesting little cult classic from New Line Cinema in its heyday directed by the same guy who directed Nightmare on Elm Street 2, everybody's favorite Nightmare on Elm Street, am I right? Really, the best one, the sequel. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, There's nothing that ever goes wrong with horror sequels. Uh, And joining me, as always, is...
1: Catherine. My
0: sister, and we are here to delve into this little gem.
2: I want this car. Jonathan Miller would never do anything to break the law. I need the keys. Thank you. Bye. He is a very fine, very honest gentleman. Something strange is happening to some ordinary people.
1: Yeah, that's Jack. Real nice man. What do you do, a Bank? Killed 12 people, wounded 23 more, stole six cars, most of them Ferraris. If anybody deserves to go that way, sure in the help's him. Why?
2: It takes 15 shots to take down some sold-out stripper. Why three law-abiding citizens all of a sudden go crazy and start killing people? We talking spacemen here. Something gets in his way, he kills it. Finds a body, gets inside, uses it to move around. The hidden. You think it's over now? You're wrong.
0: I guess we can give a a brief history. I I watched this when I was younger. Uh, Definitely not right when it came out, but um, certainly close to it. Uh, I think eventually I was drawn to it uh, on later rewatches because it stars Kyle MacLachlan, Mm -hmm. uh, who, of course, at the time that this film was made, was not really um, a star. Right, He had done Dune as his debut project with David Lynch. And that didn't go well. It did not go well, um, and he did not get work after that until David Lynch made his next movie, uh, Blue Velvet, which did go well. Uh, not fantastically sort of. well, but he, he had developed a, a bit of a name. Uh, so this was made during that period, but well before, about four years before Twin Peaks, uh, which would rocket him to national superstardom. Um, so I guess if we just want to bust down the plot real quick, uh, The Hidden is a sci-fi action thriller uh, again sort of this period in the 1980s everybody was vying for the action movie pie this was the uh you know the height of vhs you know beginning to to saturate the market there's ravenous ravenous desire for you know just anything uh, you know does it have a gun does it have explosions put it on vhs at the very least we need a car um, chase yeah. Do, do we have? Can we get a car chase? Is there a Jeep? Uh, can there be <laughs> a, a Jeep, relatively... Jeep specifically <laughs> Jeeps? We've got to have a Jeep. That's very attractive to people. Uh, is there a, a moderately attractive woman that's with uh, big hair in here with very large hair and perhaps some big boots that, that we can have on the screen for a few minutes? <laughs> are they shiny um, boots? <laughs> I mean, if they're not shiny boots, then what are we doing? That's the question. Uh, So it was a really interesting time in action films. We're still a year out when this movie comes out. We're still a year out from Die Hard, which would become honestly the pinnacle of the 80s action film. Uh, But this revolution was really kickstarted by none other than James Cameron himself with The Terminator. Uh, The low budget, high concept, easy to elevator pitch action film. And The Hidden is is 100% in that category. Uh, So in terms of plot, we have uh, a series of bizarre, violent crimes, um, uh, thefts, murders uh, committed by seemingly normal, everyday people who would never do such a thing. Uh, The film actually opens with a, a, I would almost call it a nearly found footage sort of feel as uh, a bank security camera records a, a hostile and violent bank robbery by a man that we come to know is named Jack DeVries, who's like a stockbroker, an accountant or something, like just a regular dude, who then leads the police on a car chase and, and all kinds of stuff. And so the police are baffled. They don't really know what's going on. Uh, they catch these people, but the, the spree seems to continue. Uh, and the lead detective on the case, played here by, uh, at this point, Michael Flash dances Michael Norrie, that was really all he was known for at this point, apart from some television work, uh, is baffled. And uh, a FBI agent named Lloyd Gallagher, played here by Kyle McLaughlin, arrives and seemingly has a window into what might be going on. And things sort of kick off from there. It's, it's a, a really interesting premise um, that plays upon a lot of classic sci-fi stuff, right? I mean, the invasion of the body snatchers, the thing, um, they live, which, of course, was, was coming out around this time. And so we've got all. I guess the '80s was just really a huge time for aliens in human bodies doing strange things, right? I mean, that seems like that was like a really consistent theme or idea yeah. that came around in the '80s. Um, you know, I guess a lot of it had to do with the sci-fi renaissance of the late '70s and sort of bringing back all of these 1950s ideas that were all rooted in communism about, you know, the the creeping danger inside us all you know plus the late 70s
1: the late 70s and the early 80s saw like that huge jump in in special effects in movies Mm and we were just able to do so much more and put it on film and we had all of this cool experimentation so it's like why not why not do science fiction where we can really make use of all of these cool practical effects that we can do
0: yeah technology is certainly a part of this and there is some cool stuff Uh, this is a very lean film um, it's, it's shot cheaply. It looks kind of cheap, but not in a bad way. It kind of helps somehow looking kind of cheap like it does. Uh, everybody's sweaty though. So sweaty. Uh-huh. There's, there's just, just a sheen on everyone, a glare, if you will. Um, it, you just kind of forget that movies used to look like that, especially ones shot in LA during the summer. But, uh, the, the feel of it is very refined, but there is some some technology and some special effects going on here. Not a ton, but enough to sort of sell the idea. Um, so let's kind of delve into the failure of the film, which is actually pretty slight. This is not a disaster in in the terms of cinematic history. It's um, just that
1: nobody's ever heard of it.
0: Right. That's kind of why I thought it would be a fun one to address is that even though it ha- does have a kind of cult status amongst people who are kind of fascinated by the early days of new line. I, really? I think a ton, there's a ton of crossover here between nightmare on Elm street fans and people who probably have discovered this movie. Um, so new line cinema, as, as most people know, but I'll hit it briefly, uh, you know, sort of born in the 1980s, it was buoyed by the VHS and home market video boom. Uh, it was founded by Bob Shea who, uh, you know, was an an early pioneer of low-budget filmmaking and and marketing to try and sell these films and and was very successful at it. Uh, New Line started the 80s as kind of a joke indie studio, and by the time 1990 hit, they were a legitimate powerhouse in Hollywood and would continue to grow to be one, really, until they were acquired, uh, I guess, in the mid-2000s. So, you know, a, a really sort of interesting upstart time. Again, it is the house that Freddy Krueger built. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street came out in, I guess, 84, yeah, um, and blew up, right, you know, it was tremendously successful. They did the quickie sequel that followed it up with uh, Freddy's Revenge, which was not as well-received but still made money. Um, and that's really the connection from Freddy to this film, right, because the director of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Jack Shoulder, was uh, the guy who directed this. And you can tell like there's a lot of similarity here. Um, this one's, you know, obviously a very different film. It's paced differently than a horror movie. Like, you know, a nightmare on Elm street film would be, but I think it has a lot of that same sort of upstart feel. There's a lot of, you know, shoulder likes to shoot wide. Like he just kind of sets the camera and, and lets it run, which is, is kind of bold in an action film. You don't see that as much. Definitely now, but so to sort of reach back to that uh, Freddy's Revenge or Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was, was my first Nightmare on Elm Street. It's the first one I have memories of anyway. Um, I don't think I saw the original for some reason either. You know, I just was old, still a little bit too young. I don't know what a difference a year would make, but I guess I was still maybe a little All bit too young to watch that. All the difference. <laughs> but then uh, Freddy's Revenge I did see. And and I have a couple of really, I don't want to call them traumatic memories, but I do have some very, very powerful memories of... Uh, that particular film, specifically the ending when the the girlfriend is is uh, Lisa, I guess, is, is trying to get Jesse to like stop, you know, turning into Freddy, basically, and then he sort of like emerges from the Freddy, like that's like burned into my brain. Just the mostly just the tenor of that uh, of that actress's voice, um, just the uh, anyway, um. So there's some some really powerful imagery in that one, as I think there is some in this film as well, and. Uh, Shoulder had a really interesting career. He um, retired from film directing in two thousand four and became faculty at one of the universities in the Carolinas. I, I don't West Carolina University, maybe I didn't, didn't really look it up. Um, but but before then, he did you know some really interesting stuff. He did another movie a few years after this, I think nineteen ninety called renegades which i don't know if you remember that was the oh, for yeah. sutherland lou diamond phillips oh yeah 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 a yeah. uh, buddy cop movie basically and uh, that was also really good i watched that a bunch when i was a kid because after young guns i would watch anything with those two guys in it and he you know he just had an interesting career uh before he sort of you know walked away from filmmaking he did do one of the wishmaster films the, the second one so he seemed sort of tied to horror film sequels for quite a while which you know pays the bills it does you know sorry but it's it's true he, he did a lot of sequels right he did uh the wishmaster sequel he did uh the sketch artist movies i don't know if you remember those no um jeff Fahey was in those uh, i think or at least he was in the he was in the one that shoulder directed uh they're like made for tv movies like crime thrillers you know, he, he did a lot of sequels and he did a lot of TV.
1: Um, TV he actually. He, wait, wait, wait. Is this the guy who did the Generation X TV show? It is. Oh, my God. It I is. love that, that the, TV show. That
0: was the next one I was going to talk about is that uh, he was the guy who directed at least several episodes. I mean, I, I guess really he did the pilot, yeah. which was was really all that was ever produced. Uh, but yeah, this was the one that they they produced right in the '90s based on the Bakalo and Love and uh, Scott Lobdell Generation X series, and so it's got Jubilation Lee, it's got Emma Frost, like it's it's sort of weirdly like New Mutants, like it's very similar. In it was how it's the most exciting
1: thing I had ever seen on television.
0: Yeah, it it aired on Fox. Awesome. <laughs> it, it was supposed to be a. A a series set up that, uh, you know, didn't really go anywhere, but we just got a nice little, you know, TV movie out of it. Uh, that's nearly, I don't, I have not seen this thing anywhere. I'm sure if I hunted around in the the less scrupulous places of the internet, I could find it, but I'm going, I'm going anywhere for it. (laughs) I I haven't seen it anywhere legitimately ever, (laughs) like ever. But, uh, but yeah, this was that, that first part. I mean, he was part of that first push by Avi Arad in the 1990s to to get Marvel properties out into to film. And so. So, yeah, he directed that one, too. Um, he he's he made it around, basically. And uh, but he's at this point, he's basically known for this movie and Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two. Hmm.
2: Um
0: So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about his style as we go through, but I I kind of like it. It's, it's swift, it's clean. Um, not a lot of, you know, unnecessary camera moves. Everything's very, you know, sort of planned and locked off. Uh, Although there are a couple of, uh, Terminator light hallway sequences, right? The, the low camera on the, uh, on the dolly in front of the walking figure, you know, as they look and scan, you know, the, the the Arnold glance, if you want to call it that, (laughs) um, so it this movie comes out in the late 1980s. You know, again, we're a year out from Die Hard. We're still a year out from, you know, what what are now considered action classics, but this was the explosion of action. And and this one kind of did okay, right? It wasn't fantastic. You know, Terminator had made like $80 million on a shoestring budget. Well, like six million dollars or something. Um, you know, so it'd been this huge success. Everybody's kind of chasing that with their their sci-fi action movie. And this one doesn't do as well it makes about about ten million dollars, uh, although I imagine the budget was quite a bit lower I, I can't imagine that this was more than than two million maybe two and a half million dollars because there's really no big name talent in it i uh, in in fact this may this movie may have more of the oh yeah, I know that guy faces in it than any other movie I've ever seen like there well, are so me, many people it's be-
1: the the uh, Chris mulkey. The Freeze mm-hmm. character, like it, I had to look up who that was. I'm like, hey, hey, hey hang on, I know that face. Yep, who is that? Okay, um, so yeah, I had that happen several times,
0: yeah. And he, uh, and Michael Nori, of course, who who is co lead here, like McLaughlin was not big enough, I, I think he still got lead billing because he was more of a film actor. But uh, Michael Norrie has, as you said, had done Flashdance, and, and he now he did. He has done, I should say, you know, just dozens of television shows. Uh, he has been around forever, so uh, you know a, a solid actor, um, but never somebody to, you know, to to sort of have that limelight. Um, he's on Yellowstone now, which I know is a big deal to a lot of people. It's it's not to me at all, but um, you know, like he's he's been around. To Be honest
1: with you, I don't even know what that is. <laughs>
0: It's the Kevin Costner show on, Oh, okay. <laughs> I think it's on the Paramount Streaming Network or That's all you had to say. Something. The show with yeah. Kevin Costner. I've seen it's the, seen that. Yeah, Kevin Costner in a cowboy hat doing stuff. You know. You know how
1: it goes. <laughs> So they're just filming him in his backyard. <clears throat> Pretty much.
0: I mean, <laughs> just go out to your ranch. Just let us film you. Everybody loves you, Kevin Costner.
1: <clears throat> Do they though?
0: <laughs> the whole show is just kevin costner being filmed on random plates by himself and then they just they just intercut other actors and they they talk to kevin costner and then he just they just filmed him like getting a head nod or something yeah it's like space like, goes oh, close to coast exactly yeah that's that must be it right that's yellowstone
1: i would watch that that actually
0: would be kind of awesome <laughs> it was just random footage of kevin costner taken from either his private life or just all of his movies, just insert <laughs> other people to make a narrative. I think we've, we've found the next hit for the Paramount streaming network.
1: I feel like we could make that with already uh, I, existing Kevin Costner. footage. Uh,
0: except I would want to go everything exclusively from bull Durham. And with, <laughs> the, with that nowhere to hide action movie that he made <laughs> all, all of his footage would have to come from those two films. Um, yeah, I don't remember what the name of that one was. Anyway, okay, so back to the hidden. Uh, so it's it, it made a little bit of money for New Line, which, granted, their standards were fairly low at this point. They weren't needing, you know, they, they didn't need these huge box office successes. Like so I said, it really is crazy because it feels like Bloomhouse is the new line of today, right? Like, that's kind of the model that Bloomhouse is doing. But, but Bloomhouse has narrowed his, uh, or, or Bloom. Productions has narrowed their focus, right? We make very specific kinds of films. Not always. I mean, he has produced like Whiplash and stuff, but they're they're big ticket items, the ones that they're counting on to do good money. Generally, they're going to be that more genre film, which New Line started out that way, but then obviously expanded to lots and lots of other stuff. The thing that surprised me most when I started researching this, though, was that the critical reception to this film was remarkably good. It was not beloved, no. But most critics responded very positively and it's weird. to this movie.
1: I saw this movie and I would have assumed critics would hate this movie. Yeah.
0: No, I. I it, this feels like a movie if it was released today. Every mainstream critic would loathe it because it's, it's kind of there are clunky moments. Like I said, it's very clean. It's cleanly constructed. But even still, there's stuff that you might kind of go, uh, what? I don't know why you would do that. Um, etc but people responded positively to this Um, so I I pulled a couple of the positive reviews just so that we can kind of have them as talking points Uh, and then one negative Uh, but again there there was by far there weren't as many negatives as I was expecting Uh, so from uh, the staff of Variety so the big industry newspaper uh, The Hidden is a well constructed thriller directed with swift assurance by Jack Shoulder brought down by a conventional sci-fi ending Mm. Um, which, again, I can, I can kind of see that perspective, but it, it's mostly positive, right? They're saying it's just slim and well-constructed, which I would agree. Uh, shockingly, Roger Ebert said, a sleeper that talks like a thriller and walks like a thriller but has more brains than
1: the average
0: thriller. That shocks me. He was Every once it. in a
1: while, he would just shock me.
0: <laughs> I read his full review, and, and he was down with this movie. He thought it was really <laughs> solid. Um, mostly because I never knew with that guy. (laughs) No, I mean, he definitely did. I think eventually he settled into a more specific lane. Um, but yeah, every once in a while he would shock. Gene Siskel hated it. Like he was one of the negative reviews who thought that it was just dumb and and way too violent. He was shocked by the violence of it, which again, that was something that he keyed to very specifically for a long time. Um, Hal Henson in the Washington Post said, the virtues are ones that you almost never encounter in movies of this sort. It is really a unique little item. If there's such a thing as punk soulfulness, then this movie has it. Uh, Which one of the things that most of the reviews mentioned as well was the soundtrack. Uh, They thought that the soundtrack was fairly exceptional. It is fairly rockin'. Um, There are some some named bands on it as well. Uh, But it's at times it feels a bit Terminator light, right? They're definitely going for that feel of the, the synthesized all industrial. I mean, we could do a whole episode just on the uniqueness of Terminator soundtrack and, and what was done with that soundtrack to give it it's, it's very unique feel, which has now become iconic, but uh, it was mostly synthesized on early, early uh, synthesized equipment and it was kind of sequenced manually. And as a result, you know, we get that weird time signature for the main theme uh, like there's all that stuff. And there's certainly somebody who's working very hard to sort of do that here. I think it's most obvious during the chase sequence with the Claudia Christian stripper character. That's when it's most like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, calm down. you're not you're not Brad Fidel. Stop it. <laughs> please, please cut it out. but, but for the most part, the soundtrack is is pretty good, and it's 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 evocative of something. I think a good soundtrack. Can, can either enmesh you in the world or sort of throw things at you that remind you of things that you should be thinking about, right? Like good soundtracks are going to do either a blend of those two things or, or one or the other. Um, you know, on one extreme, you've got John Williams, who is is literally telling you how to feel with the music, right? You should feel happy, you should feel sad, you should feel contemplative. And then like you have people like Williams Hans does. Zimmer,
1: who are telling stories within the songs that they compose. Precisely. Doing all and kinds then, of then you. Same thing.
0: Exactly. And, and then you and, and honestly, traditional like film composing that's super successful now, that's what they're doing, right? They're they're underscoring the moments of the film for you. But then you have those soundtracks that sort of are counterpointed, right? Like, I want to make you feel uncomfortable. So I'm going to combine this like, slightly industrial sound with, you know, strings, and I'm going to slam those together to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, because you're not supposed to feel comfortable in this world. You know, it's sort of what I think guys like uh, Atticus Rotten and Tri- Trent Reznor try to do, right? Where they're they're present, but they're there almost as a counterpoint and antithesis to the action on screen. They're there to remind you about, in some ways, the artificiality of this world. And, and sort that's, of...
1: That's why, like, you know, electronic, ambient, industrial music works so well with science fiction, is there is something a little bit alien about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and I think that works to good effect in, in this film too. Um, so, you know, people were pretty positive. Uh, we did a one negative from Peter stack in the San Francisco Chronicle. There were a few others, but this is the one I pulled, uh, and mainly he said it's too predictable. Uh, even though it's wildly fun at times, it's only halfway as awesome as it might have been. Um, which again, yeah, sure. Uh, if you analyze movies, not based on what you get, but based on what they could have been with a variety of different circumstances, I think you're setting yourself up for being really unhappy with films. Cause then you watch Avengers Endgame, which is designed from the ground up to be satisfying. And you're like, well, I didn't think it was that good.
1: You know? Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, where was,
0: where was Galactus? I mean, you know, like, I mean, I expected them to bring in Galactus. So if they didn't, so it sucks, you know, We're like that a kind of, thing. of
1: the comic book guy. <laughs> Worst movie ever.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: um, well, I mean, that's the whole thing behind you know, why we talk about these movies is that, yeah, given different circumstances, anything could have been better. Um, mm-hmm. But it's still worth talking about as it is, too.
0: And then I pulled one modern review, and this is from Nathan Raven at the A.V. Club, who reviewed this as part of his, like, going back and trying to find movies that... that were interesting there was like a dvd review uh, show that he did and he said the hidden is a textbook example of how a b-movie can transcend its origins and budgetary constraints through craft imagination and resourcefulness shifting genres almost as often as its villain changes bodies it's at once an enormously effective thriller a smart exercise in science fiction an exciting action movie and a kinetic dark Um, which, you know, encompasses a lot of my feelings about it. I think this is a lot of genre blend movies walk very delicate tightropes to maintain a tone that works, to find the the beats that it needs to tell its story effectively. And most of the time, movies that do that are going to fall down in at least one location or in all locations. And this is the movie that by whatever mystical circumstances came to be, it rides that line so well that if it does have failings, they're not, they're not destructive to it. Yeah. I'll give you a good example. So, uh, one that we're probably going to end up reviewing on this show, a recent film uh, that came out in 2020 called love and monsters tries desperately to ride this line. It it is a genre film. It's about a post-apocalyptic future near future where, um, we blew up an asteroid to save the planet from getting impacted, but it fell back down to earth. It infected all of the insects and lizards basically with some sort of mutation that caused them to grow and become monstrous. And so now everybody's living in like bunkers underneath the, you know, underneath the ground to try and escape them. And this one guy, he decides that he's going to travel between bunkers, which is a thing that nobody ever does to go see this girl that he's in love with. And it wants to be, at one time, a coming-of-age story, a monster film, a science fiction film. There's robots in it and stuff. Don't ask me why. Um, why not? romance film. Yeah, I mean, like, who, you know, it's the future. Do Whatever. You know, it's it's like five different genres all smashed together in one. And while I like that movie a lot, it stumbles at executing the monster movie part. It stumbles at being the sort of funny... Um, coming of age story, right? It, it, it doesn't hit all of those beats because it's trying to thread together all of these stories that don't necessarily naturally go together. And I applaud movies that try to, because that's a good thing, but at the same time, it's, it's a difficult balance to strike And this movie does a pretty good job of it, um, of blending all these different types together. Well, so uh, I think it's, it's certainly worth noting So the common problems I saw, just before we jump in, uh, a lot of people didn't care for the ending. Just didn't like it at all. Eh, we'll we'll get there. But a lot of people didn't care for it. Thought it was conventional, thought it was predictable, thought it was kind of silly. Uh, And then a lot of people said that for the type of action output that they were seeing at the time, apart from the sci-fi stuff, there wasn't much to separate it. Right, there's some car chases, some shootouts, some squibs you know, what you would expect. Um, and there is some good squibbage in this, I will say. Mm. There is some, some high-quality squibbing. Because uh, when the alien is inside one of the humans, and uh, which I guess we'll get to that too, but, but when the humans are, are possessed by this force, um, you can shoot them all day long and they don't go down. And so a lot of these characters at various points of the film are walking around with just blown-out squibs all over them and, and a lot of it looks really solid. I mean, it's this is not RoboCop level of squivage. Um, you know, this is, is not... Is anything. This is not flyback on the, <laughs> the table of model of New Detroit level of squivage, but it's it's pretty good. But again, yeah, what's going to surpass that scene in RoboCop? And we're still a year up from RoboCop 2. Uh, all right. So let's dive in to the hidden. Um, the film, as we said, it it opens with a uh, a bank robbery, right? But that bank robbery is shown to us from what we're supposed to believe is a security camera inside the facility. I, I, think it, I don't think it's actually security camera quality, but they've run some stuff on it to make it look that way. And, you know, it's a seemingly normal day. Everybody's going about their business. This guy walks in in a trench coat, pulls out a shotgun, starts shooting people, kills a couple guards, grabs some you know, money bags off the ground. And then as he's leaving, he stares directly into the security camera and smiles. Which, you know, not normal behavior. Uh, very, uh, it's a really interesting way to open. What did you think of, of kicking the film off that way? I didn't remember that that's how it opened. I, I I thought it opened with the car chase for some reason.
1: I thought it was very effective. Um, Like you mentioned Found footage before, and that it's actually what I thought. Of. I was like, we were just talking about how you can use you know, these different, different angles, and we don't. I mean, we don't think of stuff like that as being found footage because it's not the entirety of the film. Right. Um, but that's still, you know, it's the same concept that you splice in. Um, but I, I really liked it. I liked that it looked terrible. I always have respect when a movie will do like CCTV footage or security camera footage, and it looks awful.
0: Right. Way too many
1: movies make it look like it came off of someone's digital camera and it's like nope. No. Those always look bad. <laughs> yes.
0: Um yeah, definitely. Like it, it looks legitimately bad. Uh, obviously security camera footage now has gotten to the point where you know it's 1080p or, or slightly so better, it's, it's
1: but basic. like it's still, you know, compression and the like the amount of data that they have to store on a security camera to monitor all of those cameras all the time, they still don't look like Google Nest, you know, like it's just not the same right. thing.
0: <laughs> exactly, um, and it is. It's it's very slice of life. Um, you know, it it feel. I think it grounds the film in a sense of reality that it, it very much is going to need because we're going to quickly push outside the realm of reality very, you know, very soon. And I kind of like that. I like that the film, you know, plants its flag and says, you know, this is real life. And to prove it, I'm just going to show you, really, for the first three or four minutes. <laughs> just this everyday people waiting in line at the bank um you know then DeVries walks in you know and begins his his killing spree uh and it's it, it's very sinister it feels sinister and and I think it it establishes a whole bunch of really really good tonal elements just right off the bat the brutality the the shocking nature of what these people are doing and how they're reacting um, all that stuff gets laid out and so he's standing there right as the, the guards come out with, the, I guess, the deposit for the day, kills them all, and steals the money. It, it's, it's good. It's effective. Like I said, it's, it's pretty solid given, you know, this is 1987 and not a ton of people are doing this kind of stuff at this point. Um, but whoever, you know, sort of architected the idea of opening with this is, is pretty cool. Uh, So he shoots the camera out and then we cut to, you know, our actual film camera and and what we're going to be seeing for the remainder of the film. Um, Then we get our first uh, of many car chases in this movie. Um, I I guess it's worth noting that. The car chase, in my opinion, became a staple of the action film because it's exciting And I'm not going to say it's easy to shoot. They are not. But you can get a lot of mileage in terms of your screen time out of. It's
1: also a a good way to transition locations. Like if you need to get your characters from one place to another Mm -hmm. in an action movie, why not an old fashioned car chase? I mean, fill that time with something interesting to look at. So, you know, I expect it in any kind of action movie.
0: Right. And then and the 80s, you know, again, this was a, a basically a staple. It was rare to have an action film that did not, you know, have some kind of car chase in it. This one, I think, is unique because they they really quickly established that our, our villain, whoever that may be at this point, we don't know, <laughs> is is fond of Ferraris specifically, you know, the fast, the exotic. And we see him and, and he actually ends up driving through. Uh, one of the L.A. parks on the sidewalk and then hits a man in a wheelchair. That was intense. Um, um, which is like, wow. I, I mean, again, I know I was supposed to brutality. feel bad,
1: but it was it's it's so humorously framed.
0: It's it, <laughs> I didn't again, see that I, coming. Yes, this is there's nothing good about it, but it's shot a little bit cheaply and kind of funny. You know, they they do the whole <laughs> Cut to thing where the the guy in the wheelchair is just bouncing over the
2: car. (laughs) (laughs)
0: It's, yeah, I I mean there, there's like a, it's a four shot sequence, I suppose, and there is a shot of the the car approaching, and then the car sort of hitting the guy in the wheelchair. Just, I mean, you can't really see the two together, but you can kind of see it, and then he's just sort of flung into the air, and then production assistant just throws a, a crushed wheelchair. Not even a crushed wheelchair, just a folded wheelchair. It just
1: it just throw it on the ground dramatically. It was just, just very dramatic and unexpected. Right, he
0: just sort of throws a <laughs> folded wheelchair in, in the shot where the car is is exiting the scene. And it's 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 a little funny. Like It's, like a, it's a little funny for sure. It shouldn't be. It's terrible. think <laughs> a
1: car, person with a car should not be funny, but they made it funny. Know,
0: it's, Damn it's you, movies. You know, it's it's not quite as funny as the the twenty seven edited edit sequence of Liam Neeson going over the fence <laughs> in three or whatever, um, but it's it's certainly on that level of just the the way that they shot it sort of you know, changes uh-huh. the tenor of the scene. Uh-huh.
2: Um.
0: So the you know it's it's an exciting chase. the The police seem shocked that he. I guess the the shocking thing is he's driving the super nice car, but he seems completely. Um, completely unconcerned that it's being damaged, right? He's not trying to protect the car. He's not trying to keep it safe. He's ramming into things. He's knocking cops over. Um, It's, it's a very sort of like, what is going on here? Why is this guy doing this stuff? Then uh, we're introduced to Michael Nury's uh, Beck character who is, is out, you know, pounding, pounding doors, trying to, to get information about these people and uh, then he gets the word that, you know, they've they've got him on the run. They've found him. So it I, I like that little bit of world building because it implies that this isn't this isn't the first time this has happened. And it's not even the first time this has happened with this guy. Right. So uh, I was. Uh, even back when I first saw this when I was a kid, I was always impressed because literally with just one scene and a couple of lines, they very clearly established that. This is wrong, right? Something's wrong here, and it keeps happening, and we don't know why.
1: Well, and it's, it's a really good use of in medias res. You know, we we yeah, start with right the, the story middle. already in progress. Exactly.
0: Yeah, you know, this isn't the first time that this guy's cracked, and so then we go to his wife, and she's like, how could he do this, right? We already know all of that. That's done. Now it's how do we stop this guy, and, and who is he? How can we find him? Which is, is pretty cool. Um, they also establish here that the 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 individual loves like rock music right so he's rocking out to the cassette tape in the ferrari and and enjoying himself as he's going through this he doesn't even seem particularly perturbed then again just a testament to the swiftness of the storytelling we actually get introduced to really all four of our major police characters in this one scene, they've all come together for this. So the chief is there who becomes very important later Beck, uh, And then the two detectives that uh, work with him, who also become important later in the film, uh, which I think again is a super smart storytelling choice. Everybody's there. We've seen them. We may not know who they are in context. We may not have a full understanding, but they're there. They're part of the story, which is really cool. Um, then uh, it comes down to they've blocked off the road that he's kind of trapped on uh, in the Ferrari. And, and they're, they're going to try and stop him. Uh, unbeknownst to them, he has no intention of stopping and he's just accelerating. And this entire setup is, is pretty cool. Um, it looks like they're in the Mission District. No, no, this is in L.A. for sure. But is it? I don't even remember. It might be San Francisco. I don't remember. Yeah, it's Los Angeles. Yeah, it's Los Angeles, but they're, you know, they're, they've got him down, they're shooting him and he doesn't seem to, to, to go down. And, and then he just crashes the Ferrari into the cop cars. And, and that's what brings everything to a close. It's, it's a really good uh, action set piece. Uh, you can tell they, they legitimately smashed <laughs> Ferrari um, to do it. And it's, it's good. I mean, it reminds me of, this was typical in the 1980s, right? Seeing like an actual car crash and, you know, no CG weirdness, no, you know, oh, this car is going to hit another car and then flip into the air and fly 3000 feet. You know, none of the stuff that we really see out of the more sort of too fast, too furious car chases that we get today. It's very, it feels very real, very grounded. And and I, I appreciated that. But so after the car crashes, he gets out He's covered in bullet holes and he seems fine, right? He just smiles at them and then the car blows up and he gets knocked off his feet. Then we transition to the hospital where DeVries is, is laying there burned nearly dead. You know, the cops are talking with the doctors trying to figure out, you know, when is he going to be awake? How can we question him? You know, the, the typical stuff again, there's, there's nothing shocking about any of these scenes. Um, or even even unexpected, right? But the conversation that I, I like that sort of caps the scene is the doctor is like, you know, nobody deserves to die like that, because he's he's his body is is literally just destroyed. He's like, Nobody deserves to die like that. And, and Nuri's response is like, He's killed like 12 people. If anybody <laughs> deserves to die like that, it's him. Like it's fine. I'm fine with it. Uh, which I think is a cool, like character building moment for Nuri that he's just kind of like, I, I give no shits, you know, I do not care. Uh, which is, is kind of interesting because that is his attitude through most of the movie. Of course, I guess, I guess really it's not Nuri who expresses that it's his partner. Um, yeah, it's his partner who says that. But regardless, like, it's it's an interesting scene because it does establish, like, hey, you know, this is legitimate. This is serious. And, and these guys are being sort of torn apart by this. Um, yeah. Well, I guess you do need to mention that Clue Gulliger is in this movie, uh, as he was in most action movies of the 1980s, I guess. Uh, he's he's kind of all over the place. He plays uh, the police lieutenant. You know, one of the, the upper echelon guys. Uh, but he's nice. it's always nice to see him. He's, he's around for a little bit. Um, he was in another movie that I watched the other day. Um, oh, I think he was in, uh, clue. Gulliger was the dad in nightmare on Elm street too. Oh uh, yeah. He played Jesse's dad. Um, so when I was reviewing, cause I reviewed that film. Once I realized that shoulder had directed it, I, I went back and watched that too. And, uh, Again, a lot of crossover here. He he's got some actors that show up again, but uh, a lot of a lot of interesting things going on between those two films. Uh, you know, nothing. Just Shoulder has seemingly a very particular sort of style and rhythm of things, and there's there's some crossover that I thought was interesting that may come up as we discuss. Uh, so our our scene is set right. Strange occurrences. People doing these these impossibly violent activities. Uh, you know shot they don't seem to go down um and 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 sort of like we're left to sort of ponder for a little bit what might this what might this be um but it's it's very quickly revealed in one of the more intriguing scenes of the film that uh, there is something else going on right there is a a hidden component here that we're not aware of and it is uh, the arrival of Lyle no what is it? What's his name? Is it Lyle Gallagher?
1: Lloyd. Lloyd Gallagher. That's right. That's right. Lloyd Gallagher. Because I was laughing because I thought his, he has such funny FBI agent names. Dale yes, and Lloyd Dale, <laughs>
0: Lloyd. Like Kyle McLaughlin just gets all of the Something you know, about the his
1: face just says, "I'm a weird FBI agent.
0: <laughs> it just seems like his name should be Greg. Yeah. Not, not Craig. Greg he's a, he's a Greg um and so uh, the he defies of, all
1: Kyle logic I will say that
0: he does he doesn't look like a Kyle. he's not a he Kyle looks like a, he looks like a Lloyd I don't know uh but yes our the arrival of our FBI agent uh Lloyd Gallagher and uh he seemingly has some information on this case he says that uh this this killer had been up in Portland and uh he has been sent down by the FBI to attempt to to obtain uh, some sort of lead on this suspect. So let's let's go ahead and just lay lay it out a bit with McLaughlin here. Um, I think he's great in this film.
2: Yeah.
0: If if you don't care about the premise at all or, you know, you're not into 80s action movies, just I still think this watch it for is his worth hair. watching. Yes, his hair is something else. It always is. Like the man's hair is just...
1: Gravity-defying.
0: It's amazing. Uh, even today, uh, his hair is is just exceptional. Uh, this is is most definitely the the dry look of the mm-hmm. late 1980s. The, mm-hmm. the windswept... Uh,
1: Which, if we learned anything cut. from trancers, we do know that that look is for squids, but...
0: It is for squids, but... But it's allowed in this movie. Work. He does make it work. Uh, so, McLaughlin's performance here is really subtle. Uh, And I think if you're just watching this movie and not really paying much attention, it's a little bit like Keaton's Batman, right? That you don't, it's, it's so sort of, I don't want to say surface, but he's so in control, right? Because the whole idea with Batman is that he's this kind of caged animal, right? And when he puts on the Bruce Wayne face, that's not the real face. And so there's a surface level connection between the character that's inside and the character that's being shown and keaton i think his batman is still probably the best one that did that right bale always went too over the top he was just kind of a jerk um and and you you with bale's batman i never understood why people would find him charming right (laughs) like that's supposed to be the idea is that people tolerate him because he's charming but his batman was such a uh, his bruce wayne was such a, a dork and a kind of a jerk that i i I didn't get why anybody would respect him at all. And and maybe they didn't, but here McLaughlin is sort of treading the same ground. His surface is very limited and controlled. Like he doesn't really emote very much at all, which you would look at typically and say, Oh, well this is bad acting, right? He's a bad actor, but that's the point is he is a bad actor because he's not human. (laughs) Yeah, right? um, we don't know that at this point, but I think he lays the groundwork with the subtleties of his performance right out of the gate. Right. He's a little bit restrained. He's not disconnected. Right. He it's doesn't not act weird. like a
1: conehead or anything. No, but and he's s- definitely and some, weird.
0: <laughs> and some of the other actors who wind up sort of trying to do this in this movie don't do as good of a job. Um, they do play it like I am a robot. I, am, I will robot you, you know, like that kind of thing because there's supposed to be this kind of emotionless, disconnected force inside of a human body. And, but McLaughlin, he does that, but still imbues it with enough character and, and I guess I'll say heart mm-hmm. that you kind of like him, right? And it's, I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not an actor, so I can't be like, oh, that's really difficult. But looking in on the outside, that seems really difficult to me <clears throat> because you're writing the line of people just looking at you and being like, well, that kid doesn't know how to act. Look at him." I mean, are you acting you like doing? a weirdo? <laughs> yeah. Why are you doing that? And, and at the same time, still trying to be this character. So we'll go ahead and lay it out here. So the reason why these people are going on these killing sprees, thrill killers, they're murdering people, stealing Ferraris, listening to loud music. I think the guy even says in the hallway scene with the doctor that he knocked over a candy store. <laughs> he stole candy to eat, um, which is just insanity to me. Uh, but that's that's great. Um, Is an alien, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, this alien is a, a kind of parasite that enters through the mouth, yeah. lodges itself in the body. We're going to talk about that in a sec lodges itself in the body and then controls the host for as long as the host body can survive. Uh, Once the host body is compromised, then it needs to find a new host. And so McLaughlin's character, as we'll sort of unravel over the course of the film is also an alien, a different kind of alien, or at least we're led to believe that they're different kinds.
1: They certainly have different
0: goals. They have very different goals and, and, at the end of the film, we, we maybe get to see the transfer process for McLaughlin's character. We don't really know, but again, we'll, we'll get there. Um, but they're, if they're not from different races, they're they're competing races at the very least. And so what we really get here is a Critters 2 situation.
1: <laughs> where, I'm always down for some critters.
0: <laughs> where Lloyd Gallagher is the intergalactic bounty hunter who has been sent to to get this guy, right, who is now landed on Earth and has been causing problems. And there is a personal vendetta stake. We are eventually told that Gallagher's uh, partner and his family, his wife and daughter, were killed by this, this creature that is now inhabiting people in Los Angeles in the 1980s. And so there is a, a sort of personal stake in this, but again, his the way he emotes about it, it's it's all very very you know low key. It's all kind of tapped down. So he introduces himself, says he's 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 got some leads, and um, of course this is how he gets hooked up with Detective Beck, who you know is baffled by this case, but doesn't really seem interested in getting outside help in solving it.
1: Well, it's your it's your kind of built-in police feds tension, right? Right. Nobody likes in the, the 80s, feds. <laughs> yeah,
0: in the 80s, this was a, a really common thing. You know, your local police versus. Well, we have uh, to the, the we have to
1: turn police. everything into a high school if we can. Like it's this versus that, it's them versus us. So that's right. And you know, everybody likes that drama.
0: Of course, we all do. We who doesn't love being reminded of that very <laughs> specific time in your life when it was nothing but clicks. And the people who had power and the people. Who it's so fun. <laughs> one thing I do like, again, as, as I mentioned, this film's very swift. It's very cut down, but shoulder is smart enough to help us. He knows that we need to like these people because eventually they're going to be put in, in terrific peril. And we want to care when that happens. So these police detectives are sitting around filling out their paperwork, doing police things. I don't know. And one of them is like trying to, to throw the report that he's in the middle of writing into the trash can and he misses. And you can see there's like a bunch of them that he's missed around the trash can. And then the other detective stands up, smiles, wads up his piece of paper and sinks it, you know? So there's, there's some camaraderie building there. That's the kind of stuff that I think is missing in a lot of modern film. I also really
1: love that this police station looks like a dump.
0: It is trashed. I mean, there is just stuff everywhere. Nothing is organized.
1: I feel like like the 80s and maybe some of the 90s was, like, the last time you could really show a police station looking like garbage. Because now they're all, like, these CSI glass fronts, you know, IKEA office chairs everywhere.
0: LED lighting everywhere, yeah. But,
1: like, we all know that every police station kind of just looks like a bus station. Right. They all look like bus
0: stations. The thing that I loved about it on the rewatch that I saw was there's literally a sign hanging from two chains that looks like it's cardboard (laughs) and just in Sharpie is written burglary. (laughs) And I want to think that some production assistant was, was preparing that sign. You know, somebody's like, Hey, we need to show the different departments in here. And these are our homicide guys. And and these are, you know, the burglary guys. So we need to hang a burglary sign. And I want to say some production assistant had a, a moment of insight knowing that, Hey, if they were burglary guys, they would spend no time on that sign.
2: Yeah,
0: they
1: just would know some steal. Just it. hang the sign. <laughs> just,
0: somebody's gonna steal this anyway from the burglary department. So we're just gonna write it on a sharpie on a piece of cardboard. That's what we're gonna do. <laughs> I it's it's great. I love it. But yes, it's a trashed '80s police station, and and you know we get our first meeting, and again there's just. There's a lot that McLaughlin is doing here with his physicality that I think would be super easy to miss. He's stiff-backed, straight. His arms are very loose, hanging at his sides. There's no swagger to his step at all. It's very cautious and prepared, but nothing. But nothing that you would expect out of a a typical '80s action guy, right? All of that's been tamped down. And the, I don't know. I just, I'm really impressed because at this point, this is McLaughlin's third movie. He's, and and he got Dune when he was like 20. um So, I mean, he's 25 years old. He's all He hasn't had a tremendous amount of experience. Most of his experience has been working with David Lynch. So maybe that's film school all in and of
1: itself. I, <laughs> maybe I that's it why he's be. acting so weird. <laughs> maybe he's
0: acting so weird. Or he's so good at it because he's worked with David Lynch almost exclusively before this. But it's it's really interesting to see the contrast of Michael Nuri. I mean he's leaned in Nuri is leaned over, his eyes are sort of half closed, he's I don't know, like he looks like a typical like eighties detective action guy. And then McLaughlin is this almost comical straight man. But the the comical straight man here is is being produced because it's a an alien inside of a human. Well, I mean, like there are a couple
1: of moments it. where like somebody will open a door and he's standing outside the door and he just looks sort of amazed by everything. Yeah, <laughs> but not not to where it would give him away. But he's looking around like, huh? Oh, this is oh, different. <laughs> interesting. It's not what I expected at all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's really funny. Um, and then we get our our reveal. Right, the reveal scene that Devries is actually an alien. And it's um, gross. It, it is gross. Uh, there's some. Uh, I guess you know we've got some prosthetic work. We definitely have a, you know, a a an, a puppeted alien. Uh, it, it really is is just a slug. I mean, it really is what it looks like. It's just a big sort of slug with a central body. But it it enters through the mouth. Of course. Because you know,
1: we have 80s. to gross everybody out. Uh-huh. And his it and it earwigs in Star Trek and now it's throat slugs in the hidden.
0: <laughs> and uh so he, he wakens and then inserts himself into the the neighboring individual in his hospital room. Which I question this. If you had a violent offender who had murdered twelve people, I don't think you would just let no matter what his condition. Yeah. I don't think you would just let him hang out in a room with like a guy there for uh, Heart problems or something. Like, I, just I, think- I feel
1: like you would have officers stationed outside his room. Right. That's that's I, what other movies do. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm just going how, off of what other movies do. <laughs> yes,
0: other movies have told me that that would probably not happen. And so he he inserts it, you know, the alien inserts itself into this other person who's a much older man, uh, played by William Boyette, uh, who I recognized. Because he was one of the recurring characters in the detective holodeck stories on Star Trek The Next Generation.
1: Oh my god, that's where he's from.
0: That is him. I was trying yeah. to figure out where I knew is that it... guy's
1: face. Mm.
0: Um, wasn't it uh, Dan Bell? Wasn't that the character's name? Um. He was like, I, th- I want to say he was like the police guy in those in those uh, skits or scenes with that particular <laughs> run on the holodeck. It doesn't matter. But that's where I knew him from. He's he was an old school, you know, like TV guy. He was on Sea um, Hunt, Bat Masterson. He was on Gomer Pyle for Pete's sake. Like, uh, I think he was in. Oh, he was. Yeah, he was in Dragnet. Like he was one of the dudes in
1: Dragnet. Yeah, so I'm not was, like, his big thing. I don't I only know Star Trek. <laughs> that's all I know from life. <laughs> it's my
0: only <laughs> reference. Star Trek, the next generation. Uh, so he, he uh, occupies William Boyette's body and then starts all over again, right? So this process continues. And uh, he goes to like a, a record store and gets into a fight with the owner or, you know, clerk, I don't, I don't even know, beats him to death with a hammer or something, and then just steals a bunch of cassettes and a boombox. I know. <laughs> so he can walk around listening to his sweet, sweet tunes. <laughs> um, I like said, it's... It, it's a scene that's compelling and interesting because it's so weird. Like, it is truly sort of shocking to see this old man <laughs> beating the crap out of somebody and stealing a boombox.
1: And I always like it when any kind of alien story, or especially alien invasion or or you know, body invasion story, does that because some movies go the, the route of showing how aliens would... Infiltrate and how they would be well, it would be the the they live scenario where we wouldn't be able to tell,
0: right? And they but have this like insidious master plan.
1: Yeah, but <laughs> this is completely different. This is like aliens behaving chaotically. Like I don't really understand what the plan is, but I like it. I like what you're doing, right. but yeah, I don't I mean, really it's... understand what you're doing. <laughs> Boombox. I mean, it,
0: yeah, I mean it's sort of this idea that I, I guess anyway that if an alien came here and could inhabit us, that they might become obsessed with the things that thrill our bodies, right? The things that, you know, to where they want, they don't want to turn us into them necessarily, but they want to exploit what we our would bodies would be are
1: more like a theme park, ride. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's really what it is. It is. It's a, a theme park ride for this alien and it's having a great time. You know, it doesn't care about any of the humans because they're just, I mean, quite literally meat puppets, right? That's all they are to it. And it's, it's a really sort of fascinating thing to see play out. Um, so uh, Lloyd Gallagher, Kyle McLaughlin's character, makes it to the hospital just to discover that this transition has taken place again. Again, I, I love McLaughlin even in this next scene with Beck because Beck's completely dismissive of him. and says, you know, none of these things seem to matter. What do you want? Um, but, You know, I think Nori's kind of weathered, beaten down. I don't want to deal with this anymore. Detective is a maybe that's why McLaughlin's character works so well. It's because they're they're almost Laurel and Hardy, right? They're so counterpointed as characters that I think Nori would seem over the top and ridiculous as this. I mean, like literally just putting his head in his hands when a guy tells him, hey, there's been another crime. I think that would be over the top, but he gets balanced out by McLaughlin and McLaughlin balances him. And it's, it works. It's, it's an interesting dynamic. I think it's something that if the film had been more successful, maybe we, well, obviously this film would, we wouldn't have seen them like buddy copying, uh, you know, being buddy cops or anything, but it's almost a show. I mean, they made alien nation into a TV show uh-huh. and that movie was, ugh. wow. um, <clears throat> But I would almost rather see a TV show of this as like, uh, something that would continue. And we'd see these characters kind of grow with each other, you know, in that that weird sort of fish out of water slash guide, you know, sort of character.
1: Well, what are either of them doing right now? Let's get both of them together. What? Yellowstone? Great. You don't need uh, that.
2: No, needs make, Yellowstone. let's
1: make a let's let's make a TV show out of this. Turns out Agent Lloyd was fine and he's back. <laughs>
0: right. Everything was cool. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so if this film has a flaw it's that after the premise is revealed it it slows down a bit Yeah, because I I think the movie smartly understands that you can't tease us as an audience for too long without revealing at least to us sort of a little bit of what's happening but now the characters have to catch up and, and that's always a difficult line to watch so to walk in a movie like this where the audience, we know what's up, we know what's going on. And it it really is almost a mythical formula for how long you can have your characters not know what's going on before the audience just gets frustrated. And it's like, dude, seriously, you should have figured this out like 10 pages ago. (laughs) And so Nuri is, is really the, the problem here. We need him on board. Obviously Lloyd probably knows what's going on, or at least seems to have some knowledge, but we got to get everybody else on board so that we can lead to the final confrontation. So the original, the initial pitch to Beck to get him on board is that McLaughlin says that the guy constantly changes his identity. And this of course is is a little bit bewildering to try and suggest that a person can so radically change their identity as to appear as someone else, but Beck doesn't have anything else to go on, I guess. Like, what else can he do to explain how? Um,
1: yeah, and it kind of know, felt like he's operating this. on there being a connection between these. People. Like, I don't think he buys that it's one person at all. No. Until it's revealed to him that it's absolutely one person, one creature. One creature, um, yeah. But I think he's he wants to believe that they're connected somehow that there's yeah, some the, explanation of how all of these crimes are related and these people are some for some reason all doing this for the same reason.
0: Right. I it's it's also right after that that you know second police station sequence that it's revealed that Lloyd also has a fast car. Uh he is driving a Porsche. And I as I watched it this time I wondered if this was meant to be a bit of connection between these two, right? That the act of being inside the human body and going on this roller coaster ride is appealing even to Lloyd, right? That, you know, while Lloyd's goals are much different and he is certainly not, you know, violently murdering people, he is enjoying this, right? There is something to it. And he too is drawn to these thrills. Um, So I, I, I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think the filmmakers are intentionally, I mean, this is a choice They're didn't put him in a Porsche and have the characters note it for no reason.
1: I, Um, I sort of built up the little backstory of this in my head, that they are the same type of alien, and that obviously this DeVries, this particular alien, is choosing to act this way, and it's going against some sort of laws, norms, rules galactic standards (laughs) I don't know um and that's why
0: he's gone too far yeah
1: and that's why Lloyd is here but I'm kind of getting the impression that these aliens are here and just not making any trouble and that maybe that's why we have people who want these fast cars and who live this sort of dangerous edgy lifestyle because that was very much the 80s and in a nutshell people yeah living big and you know extreme excessive and extreme yeah And so it it seems, yeah, yeah, like extreme, but with three X's, (laughs) Um, you know, but it was, it was an extreme time of, of tiny fast cars and big hair and shiny boots. And I get the impression that maybe these aliens are just sort of among us enjoying all of this. And then maybe they leave us, Mm -hmm. but that this one's doing it the wrong way. That was my impression. That, that this is part of something that's happening and maybe we just don't see it. And this is the one time that we're getting to see it.
0: Yeah, I like that. I, I kind of like that a lot, actually. Um, you know, it, it sort of would explain how, you know, Lloyd was able to arrive. Although it, it is indicated, I think, that uh, like the because Lloyd's backstory is slowly revealed over the course of the film, but it's, it's sort of indicated that he might've taken over the body of. Yeah. Like when they were out in, in the woods, right? Like on a hunting trip or something. And so maybe that's where he landed to get to the sea. I don't, I don't know. Um, but they might've been, you know, extreme climbing or something like that, that would have been attractive to him. But um, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Lloyd when we get there, but. So, you know, apparently, uh, and there is a Blu-ray of this that you can get. It's, it's on Amazon. I, I did not get a copy in time for me to review it here, but shoulder has a, a fairly, apparently re- very, revealing commentary where he's like, no holds barred, just everything about it, the film that he, he enjoyed and didn't enjoy. And apparently McLaughlin and Nori did not get along at all and clashed constantly. Um, and I don't know, I, I feel a little bit of that in this. Like, mm-hmm. Nuri's frustration feels so legitimate and and powerful. Maybe it that was. It, maybe it was actual frustration. But, you know, I, I don't know enough about Kyle Cloughlin's acting methodology to know if he's a method actor. But it would not surprise me that he sort of... I, I think it would be very difficult to switch back and forth into Lloyd mode and out of Lloyd mode. I think you would have to stay there, and that might be really frustrating for another I actor mean it, trying to work with you.
1: You know, it could just be different, different personalities. Because, like, we may we've been joking a lot that maybe that's why he acts weird as he works with David Lynch. But you know, it takes different types of personalities to make the kinds of movies and to work on the kinds of projects that Kyle MacLachlan clearly prefers. Mm-hmm. So, I can see why you know the uh, an actor who's got sort of a different work history. Like, the way I understand it, working on a soap opera and working on feature films is different. Like, really different. Um, Like, if you talk to some of those actors, it's very much like the day in, day out, you get up, you do your job. It's about as close to a nine-to-five job for an actor as you can get. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: I wonder if maybe the differences in philosophies would create tensions on a film set. Because you have an actor coming like strictly, like primarily from feature films and like art films and kind of strange stuff, fringe filmmaking. And then you have a guy who like gets up and goes to work every day. <laughs> that's yeah. that's different. I
0: mean, those are different acting philosophies for sure. Um, so, you know, the, I say that all to say that the, the tension in the relationship between McLaughlin and Nuri feels really real. Like yeah. they, they do a good job of building that. And basically Nuri knows that Gallagher has some piece of inside information and, and continues to grow frustrated because he doesn't seem willing to share it, which of course I think is one of the reasons. I, I think that's why since we've been shown that the alien is the problem. Um, I think that's, that's why that works is because now we're sort of feeling the frustration is Everybody else around Michael Nori has all the answers except him. And so now he's just trying to figure this stuff out, which I think is, is kind of an interesting place to be um, in terms of the filmmaking. And it, it kind of works. So the next couple of scenes are really just I'm going to say almost comedy, right? The, the thrill killer is in a diner eating some kind of steak steak lunch. And, and listening
1: to his boombox.
0: <laughs> listening to his boombox. There's like all these families sitting around, just kind of staring at him because he's listening to this music really loud.
1: And like nobody makes a scene right away. Right. They're just all kind of sitting there, like, huh, oh, he's like, really doing is,
0: that. What is happening? And uh he what he didn't realize when he jumped into this body is that this body is already flawed, right? Which I, I think is is kind of cool. And seemingly this is maybe the first time this this has happened to him because he was forced into this position. So, you know, I guess it makes sense. But he, this body has tremendous issues, right? It has heart problems. He, It sounds like almost like congestive heart failure something like that. And so he's in this body and he's eating all this like really, you know, crazy food. And then he starts having like gas pains and he kind of doesn't know what to do with it. He's like, what is, what is that, you know? And it's again, it's a little bit of comedy. It's a small, small comedy beat that cuts to the two waitresses, and the waitresses look at each other after he, he, you know, belches or farts or whatever he does, and the waitress is like, "It's your table, honey. Don't look at me." You know, it's like <laughs> that kind of, just like interesting little comedy beat. And then he sees the Ferrari pass in the window, and then starts running after it, and he can't run because his heart's bad. You know, like that kind of stuff is is nice. It it adds a moment of levity into what is really, you know, basically a very dark film. Um, but really, it's the acquisition of his next car. And so he steals it from the, the cocaine sniffing car salesman. So
1: much cocaine. There's so
0: much <laughs> cocaine. Um, I mean, just cocaine everywhere. Because when you buy a Ferrari, I mean, you really expect it. Like, it's like, well, you it know. It should
1: come with a little cocaine in the glove compartment.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm here. I should probably get some cocaine. It's a Ferrari dealership for Pizza.
1: It's the 80s, so there are mirrors everywhere. <laughs> we decorate with mirrors. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I love that the coke is like in a little Ferrari on his desk too. (laughs) Yeah, you pop
1: the trunk and you take the cocaine. (laughs) That's where all the
0: cocaine is. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yes, I mean somebody, somebody really thought that stuff through, which you know I I kind of love. Um, I do have to mention the guest cameo from, and, and this is so so silly, but uh, the dead football player from Beetlejuice <laughs> uh, hey coach I don't, think I, don't think <laughs> I don't think we survived the crash I don't think we survived the crash uh, Dwayne uh, Dwayne Davis is his name <laughs> and, and he's in this as just like a guy on the car lot who tries to get rid of the the, the thrill killer and gets shot for it uh, but I saw him and I was like, dude, it's the <laughs> Beetlejuice, um, who I just have to mention that I, I've looked at this credit up before just because I wanted to see who the actor was. His credited name in Beetlejuice is very dumb football player. <laughs> oh. <laughs> hey, coach, I don't think we survived I don't think the crash. We survived the crash. Um, but uh, I always like seeing him. He's in, you know, he's been in tons of stuff. Uh, he he was eventually in a Nightmare on Elm Street film, which I guess you know New Line took care of its people. He was in uh, Dream Master, the fourth one. But uh, you know, so we have another unexplained crime by a person who seemingly has never committed a crime before in their lives. You know, I, I like the way that the police detective work is handled in this movie. It's it seems carefully thought out it's well shot like shoulders setups for these scenes where all these cops are standing around talking are really good I mean this is going to sound way more overblown than it is but almost Kurosawa-esque right like one of the <laughs> things that, Kur- that Kurosawa was so good at was arranging a scene where he could set the camera in one location and we could see the expressions reactions and conversations by five six or seven people mm-hmm and that's really hard to do, right? That's why, you know, most modern directors, you set up your wide just to get the establishings and then you tell everything with your coverage, right? You just shoot your individual headshots to get your reactions. But if you set the camera correctly, um, you don't have to do that. You can just let the camera sit and breathe and and the actors um, can do what they need to. Um, um, what is it? I guess Boon Jung-ho does similar things uh, or Bong Joon-ho. He, he does similar things in his films. Uh, Memories of Murder, his uh, Korean uh, kill, uh, his, his Korean serial killer movie. D- there's a scene in a bar where the camera is set in one location. And then like all of these guys are sitting around in, in like a booth, like a circular booth. And there's like a table in front of it and he never moves the camera, but we can see all these characters talking and having conversations and It's just, it's really effective and, and shoulder actually does a bunch of that here. And I think it really lends a a sort of natural, cool quality to the police detective interactions. There was one shot back in the second police station sequence where Nuri's in the front, like front center. And then all of the detectives are visible on his, on his sides, you know, even going back to a guy in the deep background. So you know, when we're talking about shoulder as a director, he obviously got pulled into these sort of schlock projects throughout the eighties and nineties, probably because his first big hit was a Freddy movie. I guess it's hard to overcome that kind of credit early in your, in your history without some kind of breakout hit to kick you in a different direction. But I think he's got a tremendous amount of skill. Like his storytelling, his visual storytelling style for me is very effective. And I think he he's doing a great job with this. Ostensibly silly little movie. Um, in any case, I don't I don't want to you know derail too far into to that kind of stuff, but I I do think it's this is a very capably directed movie. Shoulder's doing a good job, and his cinematographer is as well. Well, I mean, we um,
1: tend to we tend to unfairly judge people who make movies by the movies that they get hired to make, and it's that's not always fair because you know people do need to earn a living doing this. Um, so he may not have chosen great projects, but, you know, how, how can you really fault somebody for taking the work that's available? And, you know, I feel like we dismiss a lot of directors because, you know, they didn't make great movies, but they they have great technique though.
0: Yeah. And I think maybe that's why he went into teaching uh, afterwards is because maybe he ended up being more of that, you know, sort of technically proficient side of things. Um but in any case, again, I, I think Shoulder this movie looks pretty good. And I actually I wish that Shoulder would have been given the chance to direct something a bit larger or something a bit more, you know, to scale. Because pretty much all of his stuff was lower budget, uh lower budget projects from kind of top to bottom. In any case, um we get the reveal shortly after, as Lloyd speedily runs a red light in his Porsche, <laughs> that uh this creature, this this alien, whatever it was, uh, was responsible for the death of his partner. And that he does have a personal stake in what's going on. And again, I like the way McLaughlin plays it. It's very low key. He's like, yeah. I guess you could say it's personal. He killed my partner, and you know it. It seems to bond him and Nori just a little bit, sort of bring them together because Nori says he lost a partner at one point, and and they kind of you know are able to to find at least some common ground in what's going on. Um. Then you know I, I think our next setup is the realization that our or thrill killer sort of figures out that the body that he's in is, is not going to last very long, that it has issues outside of his ability to control and dominate the, uh, the shell, if you want to call it that. And then, um, I'm a little fuzzy on this, this next part, but does he figure out like where the guy works? Is that what it is? Uh, I don't remember because he winds up in like that green room. Right. And he's looking at all of the. Uh... Yeah. And he's looking around at all the stuff, but I don't remember what gets him there. He finds like a business card or something. And I, it's a business I card. Yeah. He finds a business card and hunts it down, I guess. Um, and. He ends up like basically there's there's like a ton of guns there. <laughs> like i guess you know fortunately um
1: happens to me all the time
0: yeah you know you just show up at a location for a business card you found in your wallet and there's happens to be like an arsenal of kalishnikov rifles there, (laughs) just you know waiting for you but we also get the the realization that the thrill killer is is very interested in female forms and and you know Sort of wants something to do with, uh, you know, a, a human woman, but we don't know exactly what. I guess. Um, and then he he pulls over in his Ferrari, like points at a girl, and she says, and "She tells him to, you know, f Fuck off." off. And and he like tries to pulls the gun out, like he's gonna shoot her. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, okay, all right. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. This is
1: explaining a lot about society.
0: If that isn't a statement on eighties. Uh, Toxic, you know, male behavior. I don't know what it is. Like, oh, I pulled up in my Ferrari. And it gave you explains. Finger guns.
1: It explains all of these, all these men, though. They're aliens. That's, that's what right.
0: It is. They're all thrill killer aliens. That's that's what we're doing here. Um, and so he winds up this imports place, and and he he gets an arsenal, and and now he realizes he's got to find, he's got to find a new body, because uh, this one is is not going to survive much longer. And we get our another, you know, it's, it's been a bit since we had our, you know, our last alien freak out. So we need another one of those. So the, the alien creature is like rejecting the host body and one of its, its tentacles, I guess. One of its, its mm. tethers that it use. I, I guess it's supposed to be like a tether that it uses to control the body. It like rips out through the arm and he starts bleeding really heavily, which, you know,
1: uh, uh, it's, I made yeah. so many noises when I saw this. I didn't want to see this.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's it's a good it's a good moment. Like it's 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 subtle. I mean, you can tell it's it's a you know a prosthetic with a.
1: Yeah, it's not full on David Cronenberg, but. No,
0: no. But it's boy, uh, but it's like
1: definitely that. icky.
0: Yeah, it's it's good. It's a good scene. Uh, you know, we get a a little bit of a. a Prosthetic swap, the thing sort of jumping out of his arm, and then he just decides to, to tape it down <laughs> um, instead of, you know, do anything to to bandage or, or you know, heal himself, which, you yeah, know, good deal. Um, but the police detectives are able to to sort of track down, you know, who the guy is. We get the establishment of the flamethrower in the police lockup, which is is going to be important later. Nice little. Set up and payoff moment there, um, and and so the the hunt continues for this guy and and uh, what he's up to. Then we get really a, a nice little segue into uh, Nuri sort of inviting Gallagher home to meet his family. And man, McLaughlin just nails this. Scene. He just kills it in this scene because we finally get to see a bit of emotion out of him as he's looking at this very domestic existence. And, you know, I like your premise that, you know, they've lived on Earth for a long time and, you know, maybe he had a family, maybe his family was here with him and they got killed. I kind of like that idea. I don't I don't know. The movie doesn't really do enough to background, uh, you know, exactly what might have taken place. But we definitely get to see very quickly that. There is some some past here that Lloyd, even though he does have this very sort of plaintive exterior There is emotion underneath it.
1: Well, and like it, it sort of suggests that because they're, these aliens are here for like thrills, that what would it mean when they see, you know, emotional well-being like this? I mean, you know, they, they can obviously get thrills, but if he's in a human body, like what would it feel when you have happy feelings about something? Like how would that what would that be like when you see a happy family? So we kind of get him like walking through the house and he like picks up their pictures and smiles at them. Cause it, I don't know. It seems like he's experiencing like some alien feelings even that like, I'm, I don't even know how I'm supposed to respond to this.
0: Right. It's certainly touching something inside of him, but he doesn't necessarily have a, a clear reference point for the human emotion that he's experiencing. Um, so they make fun of him a little bit. He comes into the room and hears them making fun of him. And, uh, then there's a weird moment between Lloyd and the daughter. Uh, they want them to inter- uh, they want to introduce him to their uh to their young daughter and and she doesn't seem to take to him very well. What was your take on that?
1: Um I kind of liked it. I liked that they didn't force some like weird cutesy thing.
0: Yeah, she she looks at him. They kind of have this moment of eye contact
1: and the kids always know
0: yeah it's like she knows that there's there's something off about him and i like the subtlety of mclaughlin's facial expression in that reverse shot because it starts off as sort of like i guess you can almost call it a half smile right he's just sort of like you know oh this is pleasant and then as she sort of bores into him he gets teary-eyed and then his you know turns into kind of a frown so that scene is going to become important for the last scene in the movie For me because i have a little idea about that and i'm not sure exactly if it's true or or what i'd I'd need to watch this a few more times to to develop a clear theory but i think there's something going on there um but she doesn't really drinking
1: the beer that was i think that was my favorite
0: that's really the next sequence is he's drinking a beer with dinner which you know nothing too strange. Uh, the, we we know already that these aliens need to eat. That the the bodies do need to be fed. They can't like survive this. Without this them. beer
1: is clearly a problem. <laughs>
0: yeah, but the beer is is definitely having some interesting effects on Lloyd. And and in in screenwriting terms, it's really smart because it lowers his defenses enough that he starts revealing details that no longer add up or make sense. Um, this is where he reveals that his um. that's a his family is dead but as they're questioning him about his sort of basic life information they're like where did you grow up he points up you know at the sky and they're like mm-hmm. where like north and he's like mhm mhm and then he gives uh what is what is it Roxall Hawk is that the name of the, <laughs> the place that he grew up and they're like i've never heard of Roxhallock And I, I, you know, again, I, I don't want to harp too much here, but I think McLaughlin's just doing great. When, when he starts questioning about their little girl and, you know, you know, their relationship, like there's just such a wistful look on his face, you know, that you can tell there's a lot of emotion being bottled up or almost blocked. Right. It's almost like McLaughlin made the decision that there's a disconnect between the body and the brain of this character, right? There's like a stop, a hard stop between them and only little bits of information and emotion get to sort of work their way through. And it's, it's just, it's a really cool thing. I, I know, I know I've I keep talking about it, but every time I, I see him, you know, sort of going through this process, it, it just seems very complex to me. And if played incorrectly or it, even differently, this could have been I, I a really. I think this would have been a cheesy. disaster.
1: Yeah, this like it. It could have been Coneheads. <laughs> I mean, anytime you have <laughs> right. aliens blending into humans, it, it you can have Coneheads, and not that exactly. that was the worst movie ever made. No, no. But just it would have been a a different tone. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> yes, I I think again this as I said before, is a film that rides a very razor thin line between a bunch of genres that if anything had veered too far in a, in in one of the other directions, it just would have all collapsed like a house of cards. And this movie doesn't. And I think McLaughlin's performance is kind of the backbone of that. Um, Because without him as Gallagher at the center of it, I don't think this movie really works at all. So, um, the the throw killer the body is dying uh he's leaking blood everywhere doesn't seem too adversely affected by it yet but he goes to the to a uh strip club uh, again he has expressed interest in the female human form uh we even see him doing the whole uh like stroking a, a statue at Yeah like the, you the can't stop touching
1: office. a statue's boobs Right <laughs> it's like and calm just, down dude jeez
0: <laughs> And so this uh introduces Claudia Christian to the film, uh, who I will always know as uh, Commander Ivanova mm-hmm. from Babylon Five, which mm-hmm. she she would have started just a few years after this film came to a close. Um, this is an unfortunate role for <laughs> Claudia Christian. Uh, it's it, not in every way. Um, I think her introduction as the stripper is is kind of bland and unfortunately.
1: It's very '80s movie tropey.
0: It is, and and I mean, and she's not bad at at this. You know, the the striptease
1: that she's. I really like her year, money but... bikini. I would love a money <laughs> bikini, but although I'm, I, mean, I kept thinking, like, don't they say money is really dirty? Yeah, typically. Like, yeah, you should really wash you to... your hands after you touch money. I can't imagine putting on money underwear. <laughs> yeah,
0: hopefully, she, hopefully, it was was some sort of like cleanly sourced money, right? Yeah. She got it directly from the bank. Yeah. Uh, but so Claudia Christian is, is a stripper at a local uh, harem room, I think is what it's called. Uh, you know, a fairly typical Los Angeles CD dive bar kind of thing. Um, but she's dancing and and the the Thrill killer, you know, is, is drawn to her, notices her. But now it's, it's clear that the Thrill killer does not necessarily want to have sex with a human woman. Not necessarily interested in that, but he wants to inhabit a human woman. So again, and a lot of the...
1: That's another body invasion trope. With, mm-hmm. with any of these science fiction stories. I mean, we've been seeing that since what the 60s?
0: Yes, very much so. Before it's, that, it's, even.
1: But I mean, that's when it got big in movies, I guess.
0: Right. And it's always been tied to a sort of sexual invasion or a sexual violation. Well, and the of, idea of just of being the other,
1: you know, experiencing what it's like for the other side. You know, that's mm-hmm. but for some reason, that's, that's big in movies. Big, yeah. Big in literature, too.
0: Well, and I think you know, Alien probably can't be disconnected from this idea. I mean, the the entire you know sort of highly sexualized concept of an of an alien ovipositor being yeah, any, rammed into a human and deposited I mean I water I, I, I think that's incubated.
1: Yeah. that's really the core of why so many of these stories are horror movies. I mean, they're if they're not comedies about the fish out of water, Alien trying to figure out how to be a human, it's a horror movie because we're so terrified of like of any kind of bodily invasion Mm -hmm. like that. I mean, and it does have, it does have a lot of sexual implications to it.
0: Right. And and the, the, the parasitic overtake, you know, just being, have something taking away, you know, I guess that's really a very sort of Western American idealized, you know, concept as well that, you know, my independence yeah. my my sanctity of body is being violated right that's a huge no no button for most Americans
1: and you know the um, loss of control that you know somebody mm-hmm. else might look like me and be saying things that I wouldn't do or say
0: right it's it's a, a pretty terrifying concept for a lot of people and I think it's it's good to poke at it um and which this film definitely does uh, i we love no oh, good
1: i I love her costume changes in this like throughout this scene like Because, I mean, I don't know. I'll let you talk about what they do next, what happens next.
0: Oh, well, we do get a brief little comedy beat that I love (laughs) because Nuri gets the call that, you know, somebody, they found the car, that's what it was. They found the Ferrari that was stolen from the dealership. And they're tracking it down. So he goes to wake up. Lloyd, who has fallen asleep in the spare bedroom, fully clothed, and and just, like, piled up on this, this twin bed, And he gives him some Alka Seltzer to help with his hangover, which Lloyd then he eats one instead (laughs) of knowing to put the Alka Seltzer in. So again, standard fish out of water comedy beat. McLaughlin plays it beautifully. I like that even when he's told don't you know you don't eat it, you put it in the water. He still keeps the one in his mouth. (laughs) He doesn't doesn't spit it back out or anything. Um, It's just it's good, and again played very well. But yeah, so the next sequence here. The the thrill killer has to now inhabit the uh, you know Claudia Christian's body and and take it over, which you know it starts off in in you know the again very tropey male invading this space of a of a you know a, a sex worker a stripper and she's trying to expel him you know hey you know the show's over get out of here
1: it's appropriately has, scary
0: <clears throat> yeah no this this switches very quickly like. I honestly think the striptease that's that she does is a bit too long. It doesn't have to be as long as it is. I know there's some other things, you know, storytelling things going on at the same time, but I think it's done to show that her confidence on stage is really powerful and effective. And then how quickly that gets ripped away from her when this, this man invades that space. And uh, again, it's, it's the film. I don't know if it necessarily is handling this these issues very well, I kind of don't think it is, but um, it, it is it is a, a a scene that turns very quickly into something you know very shocking. Um, so he takes over her body and then the police have already figured out that they're the, the person they're looking for they believe is inside so they've blocked off all the doors. she makes it out. she's in this this red skin tight that dress, dress that,
1: with that. a foot of butt crack in the back. <laughs> I can't. It was so funny.
0: Yeah, and it must have like an integrated thong because the thong's the same color. And well, it's I mean that's how I
1: rest- buy all my clothes. If, if it doesn't just, come with integrated underwear, I'm out.
0: Yeah, it's just so
1: ridiculous. I don't have time for multiple garments, but I love it. I just when when it cut to the back of her dress and there and it was just butt crack. It was that was amazing. That was amazing. Right. A-plus yeah. movie.
0: A-plus. <laughs> well done, Jack Shoulder. You know what America wants. Uh, and it's it's supposed to be this beat, like the cops are like, oh, we can't let anybody out, can't let anybody out, and then she comes out because they don't see her as a threat. And so they're then they stare at her her butt as she, she walks away. Uh, I think Claudia Christian had said in a later interview that, you know, she didn't have any regrets of doing the movie, but that there certainly was a little bit of a, you know, once they got to making it, She's like, sometimes you don't know exactly what you're signing up for. <laughs> and and I think there is a bit of that there. But so the the whole concept now is that the thrill killer is in a, a female body, which seems like the first time that it's made that choice and is is now fascinated by its new potentials. Right. So she's <laughs> immediately approached on the street by a, a drunk guy who says, Hey, I got a car, and, and that's what they want. They need to escape, so they need a car. And so then, you know, they cut to the, the parking lot, uh, you know, they're having sex in the car, but it very quickly goes from being sex to being like, I'm, I'm killing you and murdering, <laughs> murdering you um in, in your car, which is exactly what happens.
1: And then there was and that so great she, part where she's sitting up front and then she's like, Hey, wait, I have boobs.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, so I guess <laughs> at this point, I mean, that's, in any of these movies where, <laughs> you know, a uh, I guess a, a male identifying character winds up in a female, in a woman's body, like, it's like, oh, I have breasts. Let me, let me, you know, play with them now, uh, which is just.
1: I mean, I, like, I don't, I don't know. you know, I don't, I'm not going to say that, like, women don't do that. I'm not going to say I don't sit around it, and do that, but.
0: I have no context for it. I so, would. And I don't know.
1: You know. It's just on film. It always comes across as slightly awkward.
0: Yeah, it's just... And then nothing comes of it. It's like he starts using... <laughs> That's
1: the best part. You know? It was just like a little boob squeeze in the front seat, and then I'm just going to go on with my night.
0: And now I can take off in this guy's car that I just killed. It, it, yeah, it's just... It's there for certain members of the audience, uh, I suppose. <laughs> and I, it almost one of those things that I wonder if maybe... Because I... I, I I almost think we could do like a, a walk through new line cinema films. And I almost guarantee you, we would see, you know, woman touching her own boobs trope <laughs> in, in a lot of them. So I wonder, if, that's on wonder TV if it's tropes. a, if it's a Bob Shea thing, like if Bob Shea's like, Hey, we got to have that scene of that woman touching her boobs. We don't got that in here. We got to put it in.
1: Cause I'm just telling you, if I was a woman, <laughs> that exactly. seems like the whole basis. If I was a woman.
0: And, you know, we get a little bit more cool police work while all of this is happening just right outside, which is the ironic thing. Like she's literally outside killing a guy in the parking lot and the, all the cops are inside the building <laughs> where she is. Um, and it's Gallagher, of course, who's like, we got to find this girl. This is this is the one that we need to find now. And, and now Nuri, I think, is starting to put together what's going on, but still it's, it's not completely clear. Uh, But then we get really, I guess, is what's meant to be our action set piece of the film. Like it really is the biggest single, you know, sort of action beat. And this is, I'm not going to call it a shot for shot remake because it's not that, but it is a style remake of the Terminator Reese Sarah Connor uh, car chase scene from Terminator. Like it is. 100% 100% that we get the slightly low on the dashboard camera of the the you know evil person driving looking in the rearview mirror like it's it as i was watching it again i i was immediately struck with like oh this is this is terminator like they are just making that scene
1: and you know and not
0: badly like it's yeah. good
1: and know? and i can't imagine what it would be like to a part of the Hollywood machine after a blockbuster like that comes out you know I I can imagine that there are suits who sit in boardrooms and they're like look we need a car chase scene like in Terminator Mm -hmm. because people really liked that (laughs) people really
0: (laughs) enjoyed that movie you guys
1: I mean so they actually have a list of like boxes that they want checked and one of them was Terminator car chase
0: yeah and I, I kind of like the inversion if it was intentional and I feel like it might have been that the the villain the antagonist of this chase rather than being a you know buff Austrian dude is Claudia Christian (laughs) like it's like we get to see a a woman shooting up a cop car instead of you know a big buff Austrian dude which you know this isn't Jean-Claude Van Damme or anything like that like this is you know this is is subverting those expectations a little bit in some positive ways because uh, when she decimates those, uh, that police car with that auto shotgun, uh, like it's, it looks cool. I mean, it's, it's really yeah. neat. She, she looks like a badass. Them, of course she did. Uh, and she distracts them, of course, by touching her boobs, which yeah. I mean, of course. But well, my
1: favorite part of that was that they just looked at each other like, what is she doing? <laughs> <laughs> like
0: these, these cops who have been told that this person is extremely dangerous, that you should not give them any opportunities to get like the moment she touches her boobs, they're like, oh.
2: Okay. Uh,
0: All right. Yeah, fine. But she seems fine. Uh, yeah, everything's cool. Don't worry about it. It. Yeah. It's. It's very. It, it was a, a sort of silly scene, but it. You know, I like that Claudia Christian's character here gets to be the unstoppable badass, right? And and I think that that's a fun, a fun little play on what an audience might have expected from a film like this. Then you know. I think at this point in the film, we've developed an affection for Lloyd as, as a character. I know I have. I, I like him. Now we get to see that he actually is sort of good at what he does because they're chasing the car and Nuri's trying to shoot it and he keeps missing. And and he's like, why don't you try shooting one of the tires? And he's like, what do you think I'm trying to do? And then he just tells him, hold the wheel. And then he just leans out <laughs> the other side and he blows out one of the tires with his, his gun. He doesn't hit it immediately, but he, he eventually gets it. And so we get to see that he actually isn't, you know, just an incompetent boob. He actually does know uh, what he's doing. And uh, now we're kind of in full on buddy cop mode. Of course, we're 50 minutes ish into the movie at this point, And Gallagher and Nuri, they, they kind of have to stop being a little mini antagonists at this point. They have to start working together. And this is where that that kind of begins. Um and man, I love the sequence because where does it take place? In a mannequin factory, which I just, man, I, I don't know if I've just been primed through media to be creeped out and, and oddly interested in seeing a mannequin factory. Maybe it was mannequin. Maybe that's what did it. I it was I'm pretty watching sure a mannequin. It to me. Maybe it's watching mannequin come to life under the, the.
1: And try on out. Andrew
0: McCarthy, yeah, you know, and, and dance to, to, Bengal's songs. It's maybe that was it. I don't know, but the '80s was the time of the mannequin, and by golly, that's where this takes place here. They're in a mannequin factory. It's it's very creepy. I mean, we didn't get any well, I mean, of the, like the the ahead.
1: '80s are all about you know artifice and artificiality and and, and fashion and fashion you know. and um, you know how aesthetic kind of shaped pop culture. I mean, I think a lot of that just happened in the 80s just that that attitude that mindset and so a, a mannequin factory i don't know given that the the film is all about you know they look just like us they're impersonating people then to be in a room full of these sort of husks of people that are supposed to be dressed in our fashions I don't know, it's a nice message
0: yeah it's it's cool um and it provides a nice location for them to have a basically amounts to a shootout yeah it's also
1: just really cool <laughs>
0: Yeah, she's still got that uh, auto shotgun and she's up above them. She's found her way onto like an upper catwalk and and she sort of just unloads the shotgun on them and they get a ton of hits on her. Again, great squibbage, right? We've got some fantastic squib action happening and uh, they end up chasing her to the roof where they have their sort of final confrontation. And this is where Nuri finally has no no question that this is no longer just like regular human stuff because she... Claudia Christian's character has been obliterated by bullets at this point. They've yeah. hit her dozens of times. She's still standing. She's still a threat. And uh, there's a nice little rooftop shootout. Uh, Nuri gets knocked off Blade Runner style. Um, and and Lloyd is faced with the choice. You know, do I rescue Nuri or do I do I finish off? You know, the the villain of the piece. And again, I I love. He just he's just unloading shots into her and it's having zero effect. Um, And then, you know, she makes the decision to the the thrill killer makes the decision to, to throw themselves off the roof because they know they're not going to die, but there's a problem. But the main thing that happens is we get weird alien gun. Yep. The reveal. And finally, for the first time, and I love the subtlety of this for the first time, the thrill killer is scared. Right. Because it knows what's coming and it's really cool. Like McLaughlin is totally stone faced, completely calm. The thrill killer's like, I'm not done. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill everybody, you know. But he's just waiting because he knows what has to happen next is that the slug has to come out because the body's about to die. But then he doesn't expect the jump through the Neptune's mannequins, which
1: is a great shot. Isn't it though? It's so
0: good. Like, I don't know what it is about watching somebody jump through neon. It doesn't happen enough.
1: Well, because neon's expensive. I think people neon are willing not willing to, to expensive, spend expensive. the money yeah. to make that shot happen. in this movie went there. I bet that was half the budget.
0: Uh, it must've been dude. But yeah, <laughs> like straight up just blows through a, a neon sign. Um, lying on the ground in the process of dying and who comes over
1: but a dog
0: but the sweet sweet pup pup of the chief
1: and praise to this movie in advance you don't see anything bad happen to that dog no no and that um, is just chef's kiss movie you did it yep yeah, well done um i think it
0: it keeps the suspense up a little bit because we don't know exactly what happened but it's obviously intimated that the dog has um been in, been taken over right which I love this, right? Because the movie, we've seen the, the human transaction take place, you know, or at least had it implied a couple of times now. But we had no idea that it could take over a dog, right? Like that,
1: now at it's least the for thing. me.
0: Yeah, like it's, it's the thing, not body snatchers. Right. Yeah. And I, I just love that. And that but the thing that sells the scene, you know, you said chef's kiss <laughs> is that the dog turns around and looks <laughs> at
1: Lloyd. It's so good. the little suspicious dog. <laughs> That's right.
0: The dog's like, I got you. You son of a bitch. You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's it's just such a nice little little just cap off to that scene that after the dog's been possessed, like we know the dog's possessed, but it just sort of reinforces. Yes, the dog's possessed. And
2: <laughs> gotcha.
0: It was great. And so, you know, they're literally back to square one, because how do you track someone that can change bodies? He's trying to figure out, you know, was somebody else here. Did somebody else look at it? And he's despondent. Right. Lloyd is, is like, what do we do now? It could be anywhere and there's nothing that we could do about it. Um, and so, uh, you know, a little bit more detective work, a little bit more police work. But now Nuri is fed up with Gallagher's lack of answers. And so he actually has him arrested. I do like some of the subtle background stuff with the police detectives. Uh, the guy from Square One. <laughs> the, one of the detectives, did you notice that? He was one of the main dudes on on Square One television, the PBS show. Wow. I used to watch that all the I time not when I was a kid. did not notice
2: that.
0: Yeah, it's the redheaded detective.
2: Oh, um, my God
0: is, is one of the guys from that. I I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, Larry Cedar. I think he plays one of the police detectives and, and he's constantly saying how he hasn't seen his wife in months. (laughs) It's like, I haven't seen my wife in a week and he does it again here. And I think it's a nice little thing just to reinforce that, you know, Nuri's choice is always for the job right Beck is, is always going to stay, which reinforces the whole sort of, you know, family dynamic that Lloyd is, is, caught up in between Beck and his family, which seems like a happy family, but Beck is certainly too overworked. He's too involved. Um, But so he's had Lloyd arrested and, and basically needs answers. So they finally looked into his, his story. They found out that Lloyd Gallagher actually died in a fire uh, years before or earlier, you know, several months ago and that he died with uh, his friend, Roger Stone. And Roger Stone's body was never found. And so basically Nuri lays out all the evidence that he has for how he knows that Lloyd is not who he says he is. Therefore, he has to tell him what's going on. And that's and now finally I guess Lloyd lays it all out, right? That it's not three different people. It's it's all the same person, uh, or the same entity that is inhabiting their bodies. I feel like this should have here.
1: happened earlier. Yes,
0: my issue with this film and its second act, the second act meanders, usually for good effect. Right? There's some good funny moments. There's, um, you know, some good things that happen in the second act, but it meanders, yeah. and we should have had this conversation between Lloyd and Nuri and had like them 40 on minutes each other's in. side, like like at least 15 minutes prior to when this scene finally shows up because we're, we're fully into the third act territory now. This is a yep. classic structure, 30 minutes, first act, 30 minutes, second act, 30 minute, third act. Like it, it is, I, I imagine we could print this script out and lay them out. And the, the, the pages would be 30 pages for act one, 30 pages for act two, 30 pages for act three. Uh, but yes, they should have bonded sooner than this. Because they, this doesn't even lead to them bonding, right? Yeah. Like, that's the thing, is that we should have had this 15 minutes ago. Nuri say, you're insane. I don't believe anything you're saying. And then we should have seen for 15 minutes, Nuri looking at all of the evidence as it's stacking up. Why isn't this woman dying when we've shot her this many times? Why is this happening? Like,
1: how are all these people connected?
0: How are all these people connected? There's no connection between them. What's going on? And then he assembles the pieces. Right. Instead of being forced into action and forced into belief, he should have come to that belief of his own accord based on the evidence of his eyes after Lloyd has revealed what this is. Even if that meant that Kyle McLaughlin, for 10 to 15 minutes of this movie was locked in a cell, unable that's okay. to assist. That's OK.
1: We could have right? had Maybe... some funny comedy interspliced with him Precisely. being stuck in the cell. And
0: exactly what I was going to suggest is that. Now we get to him, he's in the drunk tank, and the guys are like, what's your story, buddy? And he's like, well, I come from a distant planet. You know, like, whatever. <laughs> Why not? Um, you know, you could have done some things there. I, I don't mind that the tension gets maintained for these characters as long as it does. I, I think it, it's not a bad thing for the film. But in terms of exposition, reveal, setup, and payoff, I think waiting until this point of the film to have the full story laid out by one of the characters is a bit of a mistake. Um, it not that it's wrong. It's, it's certainly an approach, but I think it's less efficient and less satisfying as an approach. Um, That's, that's my main issue with it. So Lloyd's locked up Beck heads home with his family. Uh, He did get shot in the, the, I forgot about that on the, the rooftop. He does take a bullet in the shoulder, nothing life threatening, but certainly not good either. And, you know, his wife goes home. You know, goes home to his wife. We get a nice moment between them, as as you know, she's obviously distraught about what's happened. And uh, then we we get to see what happens with the uh, good old pup pup. Uh, so the chief goes home. He's in his workout suits. you can tell he's trying to like change his health. He's trying to get trying to get you know 80s style, right? He's trying to improve his aerobic health. He's trying to get some cardiovascular benefits, and uh, he goes to the kitchen for a late night snack. And the dog bursts through a window and kills him. (laughs) Just kills him, knocks him into the refrigerator. And, and, uh, I guess it doesn't kill him, but it it knocks him out. And, and then the dog is able to transition, uh, into him. And now he is, is the threat.
1: I love this dog though. I hope he got so many belly rubs and treats for the good job that he did.
0: I think his name was Jake. He's listed in the credits as Jake, the dog. Um, and uh, so the chief shows up the next morning after having been inhabited by the thrill killer, uh, obviously with the intent of. Now he wants to kill Lloyd, right? Now this is a vendetta, and he assumes that Lloyd will be, you know, close to the police station. Um, it wouldn't be a New Line Cinema film in the 1980s without an appearance from Lynn Shay, <clears throat> uh, Bob Shay's younger sister, uh, whose you know acting career is is intimately tied to her brother's producing career, which is. Nothing wrong with that, I guess. Uh, so she arrives here as a, I guess she's a press agent for a senator who is getting ready to make a run for the presidency, which we had seen this before on television in the diner and that this guy was going to announce his, his candidacy for president. And now the thrill killer has decided, well, the only way to get away with everything that I want to do is to be president. <laughs> uh <laughs> This feels a bit dirty, hairy inspired here, right? Yeah. We've got to have this like little layer of political intrigue. Oh, what would happen to us if you know this murderous alien killer became the president of the United States? That kind of thing. It uh, seems
1: like that's where a lot of films try to go in scope when it comes to these right. invasion stories, and that mm-hmm. it's ironic that movies tried to take so much inspiration from Terminator, yet they didn't take away maybe the most useful part of it, which was to keep the story kind of small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they there's this, reach. Yeah. there's this vague idea that John Connor is going to save the world in the future. But like the story is just about a waitress being stalked by a robot. Really?
0: Exactly. And it ends in like a random factory on the backside of Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not, the scope is not huge. The, the, but the stakes are very real. The stakes are very personal. Um, and so this one feels like an elevation of stakes because they need something to go higher. Right. What is the thr- what could the thrill killer do other than just continuing on this rampage, which we've already seen a lot of? Well, maybe it runs for political office, <laughs> 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 even though it doesn't seem interested in doing anything having to do with that. Uh, and maybe it's not. Who knows? Uh, so that's set up and established that the police are providing security. That's where, you know, so the, the final confrontation is, is laid here. Uh, we do get the, uh, I guess, a lab tech, some kind of like CSI trying to, he's like a gun tester. He <laughs> starts messing with Lloyd's gun and ends up firing it into a wall and uh, blowing it up, uh, which is, is pretty funny. <clears throat> I, I do love this prop. I, I think if I had a 3D printer, I am I guarantee that somebody has 3D printed this thing. It, it just, it has to be. To Etsy. If not, I want to become the guy. And and so I love it because he fires the gun, doesn't know what he's doing, but Lloyd and the Thrill Killer both hear the sound immediately and know what it is, which is great. Like Lloyd, he's like in the in the cell, like whoa, what's going on? And then the Thrill Killer he'll, hears it, and that sort of kicks off this really the run to the final confrontation. It's where we start to get our our Terminator invasion inside the police station feel we get a lot of very you know Jim Cameron looking shots Mm
1: -hmm. lots of hallway shots
0: lots of hallway walking you know which is a a sort of you know Terminator staple but oh no the alien throw killer gets the only gun that is capable of killing him which you know disaster but he also grabs a bunch of other weaponry that happens to be in the room Uh, it's a I that's one thing I love about films in the 80s is it difficult to find high powered automatic machine guns the answer know where are they they're everywhere on shelves inside police stations in random import export businesses uh just in your glove compartment of the car that you're trying to buy anywhere <laughs> it's a gun so i he he picks up the guns he confronts michael nori knows who he is has taken over the chief and now finally like we get this Get this dawn of realization on Nuri's part of, of what has happened and, and what might be going on, even though he's still like a little resistant. Um you know, so Nuri gets into the the jail after escaping from the chief briefly and and breaks Lloyd out to, to hopefully, you know, put an end to this. He knows that Lloyd is is no longer lying, he's telling the truth. Um, and then he lifts does he lift the gun off of him? Uh the Nuri lifted the gun off the chief. Didn't yes. The, the, the alien gun. That's right. Yeah. So he lifts it off the chief, gets it back, gives it to Lloyd, tells him to use it, and now we get a little bit more alien stuff exposition. We find out that Lloyd's name is not Lloyd, obviously. <laughs> His name is Al Hog. And that these guys have this relationship. Uh and the killer does I guess he, you know, Star Wars is it. He says, you know, join me, and we'll <laughs> rule the galaxy as murderer and.
1: This movie's got to have different all guy. the movies.
0: <laughs> it's got all the sci-fi tropes, right? But he he basically offers him, you know, we could rule this planet, we could take it over. They could. There's nothing they could do to stop us. <clears throat> and of course, it's just by the the goodness of Lloyd's heart that he he refuses to acknowledge. And, you know, he, he asks, you know, how did you find me? He says, oh, you left my partner for dead on Altair. And he's like, that was a mistake. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, we get the idea that even if these aliens are here on Earth and they're aware of Earth. Um, there are that,
1: larger concerns.
0: Right. There are other issues and that that Lloyd has recently, you know, Lloyd himself might not have been here for very long because he's been tracking this guy uh, or this creature. Yeah, you know he's kind of a space bounty hunter. I love it. It's he's crazy. a space cop. A space that's, cop.
1: That's why he and like that's why he and Beck get along so well. They're both cops.
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, of course,
1: <laughs> we've got something in <clears throat> common, my man. We're both police officers. I'm just the galactic type.
0: Right, and and so the the police chief is his body's dying, and he ends up going into Beck's partner, uh, Miller, I think matter. Yeah. Um, and of course, they, they figure out or at least they're they're reasonably assured that uh, they're gonna, he's going to go after the senator, uh, which they're correct. So the, the final confrontation, we don't necessarily have to detail it. Uh, his partner is has been inhabited. He goes into, you know, the the announcement that the senator is, is making his run for president with the intent of finding the senator and, and taking over and inhabiting his body so that he can obtain power. There's a, a great, again, sort of like Terminator style confrontation where they, they just keep shooting him, but he doesn't um, but he doesn't uh, you know stop, he doesn't respond. He's this you know, unstoppable Terminator style killer. Um, it comes to this confrontation in like a kitchen or something and uh, Nori runs out of bullets and he's out in the open and he gets shot and, and badly injured. So you know, he's in, in rough shape. The Senator does indeed get taken over, which Lloyd, you know knows exactly what's happened when he comes in. And uh, so the announcement begins, and Lloyd, knowing full well what's going to happen to him, has a bag from the police lockup, and inside that bag, is the flamethrower because <laughs> how do you want to end a movie in the 80s with the bad guy getting burned by a flame the
1: thrower. glory of fire
0: the glory of fire and cinema history is dotted with great moments involving flamethrowers a recent one of course would be um once upon a time in hollywood uh, quentin tarantino's mm-hmm. uh you know most recent magnum opus but this is a really good flamethrower shot yeah. man. This is really good. Like McLaughlin's down on one knee. He's got the flamethrower braced against him and he is just burning the senator alive. And of course it draws out the slug as the body comes to a, a, a fiery end and he's able to finally use the alien gun, which they did establish like the Nuri was like, why didn't you shoot him? And he's like, it doesn't work on humans and he shoots it at Nuri and it doesn't do anything. It's like it only works on us or on you know whatever creature he is. So, it's really cool. Uh, I've been trying to think of a word to describe the way that Kyle McLaughlin looks in this movie. And, uh, apart from just good, like, he looks good. Um, But I'm going to go with succulent. He Mm. looks (laughs) succulent. And I know that that's not a good word to use to describe Uh. the look of a human being. But, man, he's just... Just, just a tasty human being. Like, I, I, It's very difficult for me to explain. But You don't want to go just... to Army
1: Hammer here,
0: but, but I... no, he does look really
1: good. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's right. That's a bad joke. That's a bad no, joke. No, that's
0: fine. <laughs> it's fine. That family's not Ugh. your family. He deserves everything. That's just,
1: be. I mean, who saw that coming? I don't think anybody. Wow. Yeah.
0: yeah. Anyway, but <clears throat> so he goes down, but he's not dead. Um, you know, obviously he's not injured badly enough for him to need to shift host bodies. And everybody sees what comes out of the senator, right? Yeah. Which, you know, is not really something the film is prepared to handle. It's, I didn't
1: know the senator had a slug inside him.
0: <laughs> the film does nothing with the reveal of, of you know, alien life <laughs> or anything. Like, it's just, it doesn't have time to to deal with the implications of what's been seen. Uh, but so I, I I guess it's implied that Gallagher is is off the hook, right? Like, nobody's trying to to get him in trouble for murdering an American senator uh, because, you know, it was a slug man, but uh, Nuri's character is, is dying. Uh, His family, you know, it can't handle it. And we get a scene where Lloyd transfers something to Nuri. So what do you think is happening in this scene? What's going on here?
1: I am not, Exactly, I mean, it's some sort of life force. It's some mm-hmm. sort of sacrifice of himself. and And we're supposed to be very anxious about whether this is similar to the slug transfer. I mean, like it's it's golden yeah. pretty energy when it happens when right. Kyle McLaughlin does it here. But it, the transfer is still, like, hauntingly similar in, in style. But there's no slug. There's no, like, entity that goes from one into no. the other. So it's suggested that it's not transferring of consciousness.
0: Right. And, and that is the question here. And I believe that that's confirmed with the scene with the daughter at, at the house. Yeah. I, I think that is, that I think is that the was why they have textual that. evidence. Yeah. Right. Because I think what they needed to establish, they knew that Nuri was going to be, you know, mortally wounded. And he does die. Like, the he, you know, Gallagher watches his, his life force leave his body, whatever you want to call it. And then he does this transfer. And I think the film wanted to establish some textual evidence for them saying he hasn't been inhabited by Lloyd. Like, Al Haag is, is not continued on and is now inhabiting Nuri. I, I don't think the film wants us to think that. I think you could. You could read it that way if you wanted to. But the fact that the girl comes to the father and accepts him, I think is supposed to be evidence that this is is actually Beck and not Lloyd. Yeah. And I think they could have, if they were willing to keep going, to keep extending and, and show more of Beck's life like after these events, maybe it would be easier, but you can tell this is the hard stop of this movie. We're done here. So we've got to give all of these pieces to make sure that our audience can interpret this correctly, or at least in the way that we likely want them to. Yeah. Because, yeah, otherwise I think you could look at it as like, okay, well, Al Hogg just occupied his, you know, Sergeant Beck's body and he's going to keep going. But you know, This is
1: how the movie tells you one is okay and one is not.
0: Right. And, and I, I don't, also from a character standpoint, I don't think it's established that Al Hogg would would want to take over someone else's body in that way. Um, you know, he takes over Robert Stone, you know, presumably because he was, was in the process of dying, perhaps, you know, we don't know exactly, but I, I wanted to get your take on that. If, if that was something you thought, you know, is it, um, you, know, you could do some really interesting
1: interpretations, the other direction though, saying that yeah. he did take him over and you could analyze that character as you know, being set up to want to take him over at the end.
0: Right. Cause he's lost everything that Beck has. Yeah. right they, they're they're very much parallel characters and you can beck's make the him.
1: argument that Beck's character does not appreciate it
0: right that's the other piece that i've always kind of thought was interesting is cuz when that one detective is like man i got to get home i got to see my family i got to see my wife beck's like ah. yeah. you know like he doesn't care whereas al hogg you would appreciate that but again it's it's interesting and if we want to leave it more ambiguous and open to interpretation i think you could um but yeah, it's it's a cool ending. Uh, I think this is the ending that most people reacted negatively to because it it does sort of unwind the stakes a little bit. You know, Beck should he have died? Yeah, maybe. You know, but that's not really. I I wouldn't say that the story hinges on whether or not Beck survives. It becomes a much more tragic story if Beck does not survive and Gallagher does. Um, but you know, this is still still the 80s, right? And all of these movies where we have, you know, body horror, body changes, body snatchers, you know, parasitic invasions. Most of the time, everything's back to normal by the end. There's been some cost, but everything's reasserted. And and that's kind of typical of 80s action in general, but definitely 80s sci-fi action, is we, we resume normalcy at some point. And that's just storytelling in general. I don't want to make it sound like it's a special quality, but it seems like in the 80s, Action movies were very unwilling to end in these ambiguous terms, right? They wanted everything to be clear, right? At the end of Die Hard, Al shoots the Norwegian guy, right? Like there is no question that Norwegian guy is dead, that everything is over and that we will be fine, right? It's done.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And and this feels like the movie trying to wrap that up within the constraints of its budget mm-hmm. And it's time and it's running time, right? They don't have another scene where they can do this. So we've got to tell the story with the pieces we've got and it's, and it works. It's, it's okay. Now, one thing we did forget to mention is that during the prison break in the police station, do you get a little guest cameo from someone who would grow to be a much larger star than he was at this time? Did you catch it?
1: No. Well,
0: It's the guy who is talking to the chief as he passes and he's like, Hey man, what's going on out there? And that is Danny Trejo.
1: Oh yeah, that's right. He is in this. This is his,
0: yeah, total guest star. This is like his second or third credited screen performance is in this. Um, and he's literally just the guy who gets shot and falls down, but (laughs) it is a hundred percent Danny Trejo, a very young Danny Trejo. My goodness. Um, well, but that was the, that's
1: the thing is you you almost don't recognize him.
0: Yeah, he's he's if it wasn't for his voice because he does have a line, uh, he's not just like a, a you know a day player, a character actor. He does get to speak, and if it wasn't for his voice, I don't know if I would have recognized who it was. But when I heard it, I was like, wait, what? Oh, that's Danny Trejo. Uh, so just kind of another little like ah, that's cool. Everybody something else I to give the a lot of people again. This is the movie of hey, I know that guy. Um and that kind of wraps things up. So a slightly ambiguous ending, depending on how you want to read it. I think the film wants you to interpret it as positive that it's simply Al Hag laying down his life, his existence, so that Beck can can go on. Um which I, I think is a, a nice way to read it. And I think that's that's sort of the preferred interpretation. Um but let's kind of move into our end game here. So uh, let's talk about our our one thing recommendation and our, our favorite piece score. Uh, the Hidden is a, a lovely little action sci-fi gem. Uh, I'm not going to say that it's the greatest, most satisfying thing ever. I, I think that would be disingenuous to try and indicate, but it certainly is a decent amount of fun, moves very swiftly, constructed very tightly, um, and acted very, very well by Kyle McLaughlin. Like Those, I think, are its, its biggest pluses. But, obviously it has some flaws. It has not entered itself into the the lexicon of great 80s action films by any stretch. So, what do you think we could have done, or the filmmakers could have done, to ascend it to that position?
1: Again, it's a case of I don't know if I needed this, but I think to make something more commercially appealing, something that would have been slightly more successful in the eyes of the people um definitely definitely should have changed the bond between the two of them either i i would have preferred to see their bond you know a little strengthened a little bit earlier between lloyd and beck um we got a first name last name thing with them Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know why I keep doing that. I I want to call him Lloyd Lloyd and not Lloyd Gallagher. Um, yeah. but I think that that I I would have liked to have seen them get closer a little bit faster. I mean the the first you know forty five minutes of the film should have been you know, establishing what's going on with them, and then the second act I would have hoped that they would have gotten closer and and things would have progressed a little bit further as far as the relationships between these characters go. Um, But instead it, it focused a little bit more on the action. And and I think that's, you know, it's a victim of, of the time it was made in that regard. But if we look at some of the other like classic eighties action movies, you know, Terminator was great, but it also had a lot of character moments that were sort of stuck in between the car chases and the explosions that, those tend to live on you know almost as much as Arnold's being thrown through a plate glass window. Wow, you know those things end up being about as important um and i I think this movie could have indulged a little bit more in creating those character moments. I don't feel like it did
0: i I agree definitely I think <clears throat> i I think don't people don't want to admit this about James Cameron and why his films are so commercially palatable, but at its core at, at their core, every single James Cameron movie, all of them are love stories. All of them. Yeah. Um, Terminator is a love story through time. Piranha is a love story. <laughs> <through fish. laughs> all right. Piranha may be the one that breaks it, but uh, you know, Lance Henriksen and his family in that one, you know, um, you know, Terminator's a love story through time. Titanic, obviously. Love on a you know, boat. Love on a boat. Uh true lies, love between a, a married couple that is failing. Terminator 2, the love between a father and son. Um or, or a supplemental family, but even the the mother son relationship found in families. Uh, it's found family, yeah, exactly. Um The Abyss, the core relationship between Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio is is the the anchor of that film. Uh-huh. Like all of Jim Cameron has spent his entire life and his entire cinematic life trying to tell the perfect palatable, acceptable love story ensconced in a bunch of high concept bullshit. Yeah. Like that is Jim Cameron's career in a nutshell and say what you want about it. But Avatar was his perfection of that story. And this is why I think he's willing to go on and tell other stories now. I don't know if av- the other Avatars will be the same. But Avatar, I think, was the pinnacle of it. And it is, I don't know if you saw the news, but this week it regained the crown of the most successful film of all time. From Yay. Because the they, they re-released <laughs> it in China in a new format.
1: I don't really yeah. like Avatar, but I do like that.
0: I know. I mean, Avatar but that's why is that Avatar is the most palatable, most acceptable version of that love story that I think he's ever been able to tell. Apart from Titanic, which is also one of the most successful
1: films mm. of all time. I love um, Titanic. Oh my. I love Titanic.
0: So, I, I think
1: but you know, I this, feel like this was going for the James Cameron crown and it came so mm-hmm. close, but it missed it in that one kind of crucial aspect which is
0: character. Right. The characters, and, and I'll, I'll go ahead and, and say a step further and say that the key relationship between Nuri and, and uh, McLaughlin. Yeah. For me, that's what needed to be worked out more. Um, I, I love that McLaughlin and Nuri aren't friends before this. They meet in the film. We see their relationship develop in the film. That's good. But their relationship needed to progress faster. And maybe it's because McLaughlin and Nuri didn't get along. Maybe they felt like the scenes where they were trying to connect didn't land or work. Uh, which is possible. But yeah, I, I ultimately think that the film would be much stronger if this was a more obvious buddy cop situation, or at least it got to the buddy cop situation faster than yeah. the last 10 minutes. Um, and so I, I feel like that would have done more. And, and maybe that's why a movie like Alien Nation was able to to do a bit better, although it didn't do that great either. Um, but that's what it was going for. But those the cop set up.
1: Yeah, that was more about interpersonal relationships. You know, I will give it that. It just mm-hmm. wasn't very good.
0: Right. It was just sort of great idea, not fully executed, which, again, a lot of science fiction in the 80s falls into that category. Mm-hmm. V, right. Mm-hmm. Like great concept. Cool idea.
1: Mm. Really badly. executed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I remember watching that and get the, the lady got her face ripped off and the lizard face was underneath. I remember, but yeah. it was also terrible and it lasted like seven episodes before people stopped caring. So um, yeah, I think the interpersonal relationship stuff needed to be stronger. Um, I'm glad they didn't do a ton of backstory work. I, I even think the hallway discussion between Alhog and the, the creature are, it's a little bit much like, you know, drop in some fun alien names, you know, Hey man, there's like Arcturian brandy over, you know, like that kind of thing. I'm like it's fine. It's, it's okay. It's what you do. But um, I'm glad they didn't go that route, but this film needed a a stronger human connection presence. And I think they could have done that by having fish out of water, Lloyd progress more and become more human quote unquote by the end of it through Nuri sort of connecting with him. And, And that doesn't really happen. I don't think it invalidates McLaughlin's performance. I think his take on the character is great and it ultimately works super well, but, I think there's certainly room there for some more humanity to get injected into this. But this is a 90-minute action movie budgeted very low. And again, I think it moves well, it's directed well, and they they put the time where they needed to, but to elevate it to that next level of classic, you you need that you need that third rail running through the whole thing that just connects it all together. Yeah. And this movie doesn't quite get there, right? Still well worth the time. So worth well worth watching, but it doesn't quite make that that final tick on the box of like oh this is going to be a hit at least for me but so what would be your your failure piece score and recommendation what do you think
1: um i'm going to go with the year that this movie was made because it's the number that jumped <laughs> out at me at 87 like this yeah. is this is a high this is an b 87. it's yeah. not it's not an a tier film it doesn't doesn't no, quite no. get there but it's close i feel like just a just a little bit more in it could have made it um, I think I recommend this movie for a lot of reasons. I think, you know, if you like 80s action, if you like 80s sci-fi, if you like, you know, John Carpenter, if you like James Cameron, you're going to like this movie. Um, but you should also see it if you're a fan of Kyle McLaughlin and what he does with his acting career, because this is him playing a weird FBI agent before he ever played the weird FBI agent he's famous for
0: playing. Yes. The weird FBI agent that we all love. Yeah. Maybe even this Maybe even Dale Cooper was forged in the crucible. I have to believe Gallagher.
1: that every yeah. weird FBI agent you play informs the next one. So <laughs> I like to think that this helped shape the future of Dale Cooper.
0: I, I believe it. Um that's our that's our next challenge is to read his performances Lloyd Gallagher against his performances Dougie Jones in the <laughs> I'll Twin do it. Peaks. <laughs> the I'll Twin do Peaks it. the Return <laughs> series. <laughs> Uh, maybe there's some connections there that we haven't quite made. But, yeah, it's it's definitely a great um, Kyle McLaughlin vehicle. If you have any interest in McLaughlin's career um, and you haven't seen this, you, you know this hasn't come up in your research to try and find, uh, it's well worth watching just to see an obviously talented and gifted young actor take what could have been a very bad role, handled badly, and really do something quite exceptional with it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm in the exact same boat. Um, I had written down 88, but I like your justification better. So I'm going to revise my score <laughs> to 87, the year of its birth and say, yes, this is, this is a definite B classic, right? Very nearly tier. here, um, but just doesn't quite make it, but it's, it's exceptionally well made. It's really well shot. It looks good for what it is, which is an eighties action movie in the, in Los Angeles. So those all kind of look the same, but, you know, Shoulder I think is a really underrated director. I, I'm kind of interested in hunting down some more of his stuff, even his TV work, um, to see, uh, you know, sort of how his career continued on. Obviously, it didn't achieve any great heights. Um, this this may actually be the high point of his career if we're, we're really being you know honest and looking at his his entire sort of output. But I I think he he had a tremendous amount of skill, and this film's evidence of that. Well, all right. Uh, I guess that wraps us up. Uh, we definitely are pro The Hidden. Check it out if you get a chance. Uh, it is not currently streaming anywhere that I'm aware of. I think you can rent it on Amazon Prime relatively inexpensively. And as I said, there was a Blu-ray release from the Warner Brothers Vault collection in uh, 2017 that is still out there. Uh, it's a little pricey given that it's a Blu-ray of a you know, film from 1987. It's like 18 bucks, I think. But... Um, you know, it's it's worth hunting down. I'm going to get the Blu-ray copy just so I can listen to Holder's commentary track.
1: Right? Yeah, I'm and curious again, to again, hear more. Really about exceptional. That.
0: What's yeah, I'm I'm curious to see because apparently he's he's quite brutal. Like he, you know, Ooh, it's one of those great director a spicy contru- commentaries. Commentary track. Where, that's right. Where he's like, <laughs> I mean, he'd been out of the game at that point if he recorded it in 2016 or 2015 when it came. You know, when they were producing it. I mean, he he'd been out of the game for 10, 12 years at that point, teaching and in, in North Carolina or something. So he's not going to care <laughs> about pissing anybody off. Exactly. Uh, so I've kind of curious to see uh, sort of how that ends up, but all right. So where can you be found on the social medias?
1: I can be found on Twitter at Baskinator.
0: And I can be found on Twitter at T Baskin. And of course, if you want to get us together or you want to follow our podcast for updates, you can get us at F peace theater on Twitter, or you can email us at failure piece at gmail.com. Well, thanks for listening, and we will be back next week with another discussion of a cinematic near miss, a film train wreck of the potentially awesome variety. Because if it can't be a failure, if it can't be a masterpiece, it might be a failure piece. So we'll see you next time.
1: Bye bye.